0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome, everyone, to our uh, sixth annual uh, Autonomous Vehicles in the City Conference. Uh, it's our first uh, conference back since uh, 2019 when we last did our first, last in-person conference. So we've got uh, close to 100 people here in the audience, and we have many, many more watching around the world online. So thank you for being here uh, we have a fantastic lineup today, uh, and our, our kind of our trajectory is going to be talking about some of the work that USF has been doing with some of the real-world deployments that are happening here in San Francisco. And we're going to hear from our partner in that, the people that we've been actually getting some data from, uh, crews at the end of the day. But we'll talk a little bit about, about our work. Uh, to start off with and then we're going to hear from a number of other experts you'll have a chance to talk with them hopefully out in uh a little uh 30 minute half or 30 minute uh, coffee talk or coffee time we will have in a little bit sorry for those of you online but you know next time you'll have to be here for our yummy coffee um, but we'll focus on a little bit on where the technology is um, how we can synergize to make sure that um, we we uphold the public good and then we do the best outcomes for our cities and uh we'll talk a little bit about ai and smart vehicles and we'll hear from companies that are really at the edge uh, of some things called of um, uh, smart data of some of digital twin of really traffic management so we'll talk a little more in a highly granular way about the data and the and the data technology behind things so i think uh you're in for a lot of great education uh, and a lot of great information today but first i have the pleasure of welcoming uh our new dean uh Atko and Akko, hold on a minute because I wanna I want to tell everyone how impressive you are. Um, really um, Dean Akko Erham Jums. Uh Otko is a professor and the dean at University of San Francisco. She has degrees in a variety of fields including uh information technology, economics and finance. Um, and her research interests have really spanned a number of disciplines from banking and risk management and insurance to corporate finance and what I'm proud of, which is uh, ESG and corporate responsibility, uh, sustainable and social impact investing. Um, Akko, she's written multiple leading books in global business and economics and is passionate about integrating STEM into our curriculum and, um, and I think she's really, since she's been here, she's really championed, and over her career, she's really championed uh, addressing grand challenges that we're facing as a planet as well as kind of thorny and wicked problems that we have to come together for as both public and private sector uh, individuals. So... Uh, she's passionate about leading this school, University of San Francisco School of Management, towards a focus on ESG and the UN SDGs, which is directly aligned with this event. So I'm so happy to welcome you, welcome you, Dean Otgo. And so without further ado, maybe you can join me in welcoming her. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Billy. Uh, that was very generous. Uh, hi everyone. Um, thank you to uh I'm excited to be here. Um, welcome to the sixth annual Autonomous Vehicles Conference. Uh today we're excited to talk about innovation, entrepreneurship, um, and building the economically prosperous, sustainable and just cities of the future. Uh today you will hear from those developing autonomous solutions and challenges that these new uh, solutions bring. Uh, This technology offers great promise in how we can plan and manage the future of cities and regions, particularly in light of the grand challenges and wicked problems our planet faces. Planning for and accelerating innovation that crosses both the public and private sectors is paramount if we're going to address these issues and achieve the benchmarks that have been put forward in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And transportation is a large component of how we can help address things like access to employment, food, healthcare, housing, and social mobility. At USF School of Management, we are committed to training the future leaders who will advance the ESG goals that will help address this providing not only the entrepreneurial and investment approach, but the interface with the public sector, working to shape the infrastructure and the built environment to promote the public good. The Autonomous Vehicles and City Initiative provides that forum, looking at how we can foresee the future of the digital city and discussing the impacts and policy implications including the new technology, economies, and innovation, but also the same issues of environmental quality and climate, currently being discussed in Egypt at Climate Change Conference. As the new dean, I'm thrilled to continue this conversation in work and that USF can lead this multidisciplinary dialogue. And now let me turn the mic over to your host, Professor William Riggs, who leads our autonomous vehicles, and innovate for good initiatives, who will provide an overview of the day. Thank you for being here, and hope you enjoy the wonderful program we have for you today. Welcome and onward.
1: Thank you. All right. Thank you, Argo. And that was a very good. And I think that you frame things really well there in terms of kind of the big picture of where we're going. So I want to invite two of our grad students up now. Uh, and what we're going to do is uh, really kind of frame things uh, based on some work that we've done uh, recently. Uh, with, uh, Cruz, maybe what I'll do is, you know, we're gonna have a, a number of speakers you'll hear from today, and I do wanna actually thank, uh, we, we did have some sponsors, and I'll thank them right now and again at the end, but we have Cruz, Atmos Financial, Waymo, and Planetizen that provided some funding, uh, for this conference, and thank you for that. We, we've been able to provide some nice refreshments as a result, and our live streaming as well. Um but as we go forward, I really want to frame things by kind of grounding us in what's happening out there. So, uh, without further ado, I want to invite uh, Shannon Mark and Nathan Karkowski up here. So, uh, Shannon is actually in our MS- MSEI program, our Masters of Entrepreneurship and Engineering. Yeah, let's hear it for them! Uh, and so, uh, and both of them have been working uh, on a research project where we've been evaluating uh, some of the rides that the cruise has been offering in the city, offering in the city. Uh, And Nathan is in our Master's of Public Administration program. And uh, so without that further ado, why don't I turn it over to the two of you to kind of explain what we've been doing.
3: Thanks, Professor Riggs. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. As we've touched on, we were very fortunate to partner with Cruise on the pilot program. And basically the idea was to get autonomous vehicles out into the public, obviously a a sample size that we worked with, to see how people would behave when they have access to this as a form of transport. So basically cruise I'm sure lots of people have seen these vehicles around um, all over the area here. And the idea is that it's a a ride share, completely autonomous um, electric vehicles, um, obviously providing a transport service to the people of San Francisco. Um, and some big news was in, in June 2022 this, this year, um, they actually received their final permit, which allows them to provide a service of autonomous driving um, and actually charge a fare for it as well. Um, so cruise, as I've touched on, obviously zero emission, completely green energy, um, self-driving, and the idea is to provide a shared service for, for transporters within San Francisco. Um, With regards to the permits, it's been a long time working with the DMV and the Public Utilities Commission, um, seven years to be specific, and as I mentioned, the the big um, permit was finally uh, received June this year, um, which obviously paves the way for the entire industry going forward. Um, so just to set the stage, uh, the, the trial actually operated under the ODD, which is the Operational Design Domain. And the idea behind that is that there's set rules with regards to the area. Um, we refer to it as the dog in the, in the transit um, community, as you can see the – the area itself does depict a dog in shape, um, but it also speaks about the roads that are allowed to be traveled on, um, the weather conditions, speed limits, and uh, most importantly, actually the time of day. So the trial was actually operated between 10.30 p.m. and 5 a.m. Um, in terms of our riders, we, we try to get a diverse um, group of riders, and that. um included people living on campus and off campus. Majority of them were actually off campus to give it as realistic uh, a display of the general public as possible. So as we would expect, the primary purpose um, of of rides during the day were for things like school, work, um, and then as you go to the later times in the evening after 10 p.m., majority of it was for social um, activities. So... In terms of what the current transport um, that riders were using was, well, during the day, it was things like public transport, walking, a bit of driving themselves. And then in the evening, it actually transferred to using more of your ride chairs, like your lifts or your Ubers, and then actually driving themselves. And um, the students that we interviewed all made um, – comments that they thought um, transit connectivity, good service distribution, and taking into account people with disabilities is vitally important in terms of how we introduce AVs as a, as a form of transport service. The biggest question that keeps coming up is whether AVs will come in as a complement or a supplement to the current transit um, options available. And the early data from our ride, um, ride rider trial actually came up that Over 50% of these trips would replace things like rideshare for um, important um, tasks such as errands, work or school, which is obviously very promising. In terms of um, the riders that were interviewed, 76% of them mentioned that these trips would have been done otherwise. So this is vitally important. We're not putting more vehicles on the road. They would have taken the likes of the Uber or Lyft or other rideshare options, um, with 55% of them actually mentioning they would have used rideshare. So this is obviously very important information in terms of how AVs can be leveraged. Um, in terms of the travel for, for the autonomous vehicles, um, As we expected, a large majority of it was for things like social events because it was obviously in the evening hours. But surprisingly, around about 20% was for things like work, school, errands. It's also really interesting um, information that we collected. And then I'm now going to pass on to Nathan. Nathan was actually involved in the trial himself. He was one of the riders that participated. So he's going to give a bit of um, an idea of what it was like being one of the riders on the trial.
4: Shannon, thank you. As you can see here on the graph, we've got quite a few factors influencing people's decisions with cost being the largest driving factor right now, uh, followed by reliable service. It's going to be there. You're not going to have someone canceling a ride on you, uh, all of those challenges. Uh, and then Safer alternative. Uh, one of my cohorts or, or a good friends from school, uh, she was relaying some of her experiences, uh, ones I have not had as a male rider. Uh, she had shared stories of riding in vehicles with drivers she felt less than safe with. So having an autonomous vehicle transport you elevates that level of safety she'll be able to experience in her life. Uh, and then certainly, uh Last but not least, and very worth mentioning, is the don't want to drink and drive. Uh, We want to make this world a safer place, and that's a a pretty good motivator, if you ask me. Sometimes getting out where I live, there's not a whole lot of real good uh, direct bus service, and uh, certainly the fact that cruise vehicles are available is pretty darned awesome, Uh, something I had relayed to Billy uh, in some of our early interviews huge fan of the technology it is a heck of a lot of fun to watch these vehicles cruising around uh, pun intended right there uh, have been watching the the industry grow for quite a few years here in San Francisco all very exciting stuff and I was as giddy as heck uh, when I had my first ride uh, just couldn't take my eyes off of that empty driver's seat uh, and was just fascinated by all of the processing that had to be happening in the background to literally make that right turn and uh, zip down Geary Street. Uh, With that, Shannon, back to you.
3: Thanks so much, Nathan.
4: Um,
3: So, just to wrap up, um, if anyone does have any questions that they'd like to ask us, we will obviously be here for the rest of the the day. Um, At that link, you can find a bit more info into a more um, full report in terms of the rider trial and the results of the same trial. Um, And, yeah, that's basically what we've been working on. We're looking forward to Continuing our, our research and our involvement in, in this whole space. Thanks so much.
1: We're gonna do it a little photo, guys. Again, we gotta gotta look at these green vehicles here. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Thank, just here for this uh, our, our master students again in the public administration program and the entrepreneurship and innovation program. So, and if you want more information on those programs, uh, go to our website. So. Um, uh, really, so what I want to do is really just kind of move us forward and, uh, uh maybe invite our, our first panel up, uh, to talk about, um, some stuff. So we're gonna, our trajectory today is really gonna be focused on the vehicles and the infrastructure first. <laughs> Uh, and then we're going to pivot over to kind of the data and AI side of things. So maybe I can have uh, Martin, uh, Alante, and so I think Dan might still be in the back. Maybe uh, somebody can go grab him too. Oh, there he is. Uh, and we can kind of come on up. Thank you all for being here. Really appreciate it. Um, in the spirit of, oh, are we going to, yeah, we'll do that again. In the spirit of uh, kind of giving organic introductions, I've I've had, a, I actually haven't had a chance to meet all of you, except for you, Elisa. So uh it's really welcome to you, and I know some of what you're working on, so I look forward to hearing more. So, uh, you know, I'd like to hear kind of from you, maybe you could introduce yourself and kind of, uh, what you're doing in the automated and autonomous vehicle space, um, who you're working for, and maybe a little bit about your history in this industry and other industries. So why don't we, Elisa, why don't we just put you on the spot and go, uh, uh you know, from the audience left to right.
5: My name is Elisa Paz. I'm a principal planner at the SFCTA. Um, I'm leading our autonomous vehicle shuttle pilot on Treasure Island. Um, it's been, um, under development for Quite a few years, we received funding from USDOT, MTC, and also our local Prop K funds to do this pilot. Um, It's one of the first um, applications of a shared um, shuttle service on public roads in California. So that's really exciting and a big milestone. Um, It's also an opportunity for us to test autonomous vehicles in a shared um, more public environment compared to, you know, the private testing that we see, um, all over San Francisco. Um, the pilot is, um, really focused on data and research, so we do have, Um, really clear goals and evaluation processes. Um, And we're also, um, through our outreach process, we heard from our board um, the need to understand workforce and labor and education opportunities through this pilot. So we've integrated um, a partnerships program, um, working with um, education groups, workforce and labor to understand, you know, how AVs will also bring benefits to um, workforce and local businesses and you know the local community here as well.
1: Before we hand it over to Elanteek, maybe uh Elisa, just so we we don't we we don't talk we don't acronym it up too much. The SFCTA is
5: great question. San Francisco County Transportation Authority.
1: (laughs) Yes we in the transportation we get we get into transportation speak and jargon quite a lot. So um and then uh but you, how long have you been – can you tell us how long you've been at the CTA and kind of – Sure. What a, you're a planner there.
5: I am a planner. So um, I work in our planning division. Uh, I've been at the SF CTA for about um, two years. Um, before that, I was a consultant. So I've worked um, kind of all over California, um, parts of the country, parts of the world, doing – new mobility, and really focusing on mode shift, TDM, transportation demand management. Um, So those are kind of my areas of expertise.
6: Awesome. Hello, everyone. My name is Alante Whitmore, and I'm the director of the Autonomous Vehicle Initiative at SAFE. And SAFE uh, is based in D.C., and we are a transportation policy research organization. And so as a director, I'm responsible for helping us Continue to do policy research uh, to create political will for federal policy framework for autonomous vehicles, but also helping to articulate all the social and economic benefits of the technology. Um, We actually started around 2014. I was not there yet. I was uh, probably a lowly, barely a lowly uh, graduate student at the time, Um A little bit of background, I just completed a joint PhD in civil engineering and engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University, and I spent that time looking at how we can improve Um, access with autonomous vehicles, specifically sharing them and sharing autonomous vehicles and integrating them with public transit. So I'm always thinking about all the ways that AVs are a tool for increasing access and making our world better and giving people better access to workforce opportunities, social opportunities, any services they need. Um, And actually a bit before that, I actually was an ag engineer. So I used to do a lot of biofuel research and um, Electrification happened, which is a beautiful thing, but then an educational opportunity happened with AVs um, that led me down this path. So really excited to be a part of this conversation today.
1: That's great. And I'm supposed to remind folks uh, watching online, there's a lot of them, uh, that you can submit questions on the live stream. So please do that. We want to hear from you, and um, the staff will bring up those questions to me as we proceed. Martin.
7: Yeah. Uh, Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Martin Sierhaus, and I head up the research center for Nissan and the Alliance, which is the Renault-Nissan-Mitsubishi Alliance in Santa Clara. Um, I created the center in 2013. Um, We work on everything that has to do with mobility, um, from level two to level four autonomy, from connected cars, from you know CV2X from you know smart city um, as well as uh, material science <clears throat> um, we have a large research organization and I'm very proud to say that we're also doing uh, advanced engineering so our our work actually goes into product uh, which is very exciting um yeah so that's um, you know please check it out um how you know a little bit of background right so background
1: yeah, yeah. and also uh, tell us a little bit about the i680 stuff about the
7: what? The I-680 stuff, huh? The I-680 stuff. Okay. Yeah, so, um, your, your competitor, uh, in, uh, in Contra Costa, we, we actually are working very closely together with the Contra Costa Transportation Authority. Um, we're having funding from them to, to work on safety in, on the roads, uh, with, uh, CV2X, so connected and 5G and cloud AI. Um, so we're making intersections intelligent. Um, and connecting that to our vehicles and to pedestrians and bicyclists. And then we're also doing work on traffic management in terms of congestion on 680. Um, You know, one of the things that uh, we have – we're working together with UC Berkeley on this and Vanderbilt University. Um, Nissan will have a 100-car pilot next week with Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, and we're actually doing, um, I would say, a follow-up on this where we actually say if 10% of the vehicles could be controlled their adas so their their acc the autonomous uh, cruise control if we can control that car with about 10% penetration we could eliminate a lot of the the harmonization on the highways and therefore reduce traffic jams and stuff and well, maybe let's come back to yeah. to that a little bit yeah. in so, one of the questions yeah sorry i'm going yeah, right yeah. in there You're diving sorry. right in but that's that's what we're doing um a little bit of background, you know, I'm I'm actually a an AI guy. Uh worked for more than thirteen years as a senior scientist at NASA Ames on human robots going to Mars. Um, I built software that runs in mission control for the space station. Um, and then started my own company here in the in San Francisco that I still have in healthcare. Um and then Nissan came to ask me to start a research center and I said no. <laughs> and then they say, really? And I say, yes. And then they said, really? And then finally I said, okay. <laughs> so uh, that's basically my background. Uh, I also worked at Xerox Park for a while and, um, you know, did some other stuff. So originally from the Netherlands, though. So my alma mater is the University of Amsterdam. So in case you know, you know, go check it out there. Cool. Cool city.
8: All right. Dan? <laughs> Okay. Thank you very much. Um, great to be here. I want to talk to you a little bit more. I drove my Nissan Leaf um, up to San Francisco today.
7: Love this guy already. <laughs> uh,
8: uh, but uh yeah, so excited to hear a little bit more about that. Um Dan Mitchell, I work for Neuro. Uh Neuro is an autonomous vehicle company focused on building a a novel design vehicle. With zero occupants just for delivery services, and so NERA has been around for about six years now. Uh, we actually have built the vehicle, built and designed the vehicle, and have it running um, as part of our testing operations as well as deployment. With a number of our partners working on delivery services with these autonomous vehicles and technology, really excited to talk more about one of those use cases. Uh, saw a little bit about the the cruise. Uh, services and a lot of people there listed, you know, deliveries or shopping is one of the reasons why they use autonomous vehicles. This is a, a very specific use case, part of that. But we believe it's one of the first use cases that could, is going to be really widely commercially available to a lot of people. Um, and so that's what Neuro is focused on. Uh, my role at Neuro, I work on the city and community engagement side. Um, that means engaging with. City governments, local officials, uh, and members of the community about what our vehicles are doing when they test in the neighborhood. How we can all keep work together to keep our streets safe, um, whether that's autonomous vehicles or um, personally driven vehicles, or in fact, you know, vulnerable road users as well. Um, we all share the road. It's part of all of our responsibilities um, as part of road safety. There. As well as, um, you know, lots of folks have questions about these vehicles, like law enforcement officials. And so working with those specific individuals and groups um, specifically about our deployment um, and testing on the roadways and how these vehicles can hopefully have a, a positive impact on the cities and communities where we all live um, and work. And we should we should clarify that you, uh,
1: as a neuro, have one of these these said permits to to run your vehicles on the public Radio. Right.
8: We do. Yeah. So um, we have um, the permit to commercially deploy our autonomous vehicles, and actually have done so. We have right. live delivery services happening in Mountain View, California, uh, today with uh, one of our, our delivery partners okay. there. And just so we have – because we have a lot of students in the audience. How does, how does, how did you end up at a company called Zero? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I had a prior career actually doing political campaign work. So I was traveling around the country doing a little political stuff. If you haven't yet voted, um, please go out and vote tomorrow. Um, but, uh, and then I, I was at business school um, at UCLA. And from there kind of launched my career in startups and technology. Um, actually, uh, starting a child transportation service, uh, uber for kids type service where you know parents could book a ride via app and we would send over a, a school bus or a, a personal vehicle to go pick up those kids and take them to where they want to go um working with autonomous vehicles is actually a lot easier <laughs> than working and figuring out how to move a first grader from school to dance class but um that was a, a lot of fun and helped set me up for success uh here at neuro i did not know that that's
1: a really cool story i learned a little bit myself well maybe i what i'd like to do maybe to, to kind of kick us off first, is to really focus on kind of where we are with the actual technology. Um, and I feel like uh, maybe to you get your kind of you all's read, because, um, and maybe Martin, we can start with you, because you mentioned this this idea of your ACC. And and so, so where are we with kind of a lot of these vehicles that are out there on the roads today? And I know, Dan, you can talk a little bit about your accoutrements. We don't have... Crews up here to talk about what they're using on their vehicles from a hardware standpoint, but Prashanti may be able to talk about that a little later. But maybe, Martin, you could just start and give us a flavor for how Nissan's approaching the technical challenge of – and maybe yeah. we could do a primer for those of those uh. of us that don't know. How does an autonomous vehicle actually see and know the environment around us?
4: It's, it's like the Force, right?
7: It's- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's a – It's a tough question um, to answer. I feel always because you know there is what we're all working towards, which is the holy grail, and and Cruise is, you know, is 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 reaching it right with driving in in San Francisco. I think uh, a difficult city to drive in, Um, but today's vehicles from the OEMs, from the car manufacturers, you know, are not at that level yet, right? Because there's there's many reasons for it. But if we start with what we've realized you know, I would say about five, seven years ago, is that uh, the technology that we're working on on level four could actually be applied at level two first, right? And that's what you see happening in the industry today. But if you go to level four, you need to have, you know, quote-unquote perfect vision. Um, and so perception is, you know, for autonomous driving, I think the hard part that you need to you know, to really solve in order to drive, you know, without a driver in the, in the car. And so the sensors on the car could be lidars and cameras and radars, you know, and then you need to have the AI software to observe what is, what is on, what you see in the world. You know, how can you bring what is in the world into quote unquote the memory of the, of the computer? And, and that really is the hard problem. And it's not just detecting you know, the pedestrian or the bicyclist or the, you know, the vulnerable road user and other drivers. It's predicting what is going to happen in the next, you know, three to six seconds, right, in order to be anticipating what the difficult situation might be and what what you do. So perception is all the way from the raw data coming in from the sensors to figuring out what is happening on the road and then predicting what is going to happen and based on that now you have to make your right decision and and this is the hard the hard uh part i say and you know for the oems there are a number of problems that we we face and and i would say the first hard problem is how much are you willing to pay you know for those sensors and it turns out not very much (laughs) you know um and if you and and for you to realize, and I, I myself, you know, I'm not a car guy. I, I, I've been, you know, actually, on February we have our 10th year anniversary, so I've been at the company 10 years in February. Um, but what I didn't realize is that every dollar that is added to the price of a car is scrutinized in the company, right? Because it it, it really is to to bring the best experience for the lowest price, and and you know, if you have a LiDAR that costs $40,000 and now, okay, so now of that they come down and they cost $20,000. And then some of them come down from China and they're $10,000. But that's still a lot of money to add to a vehicle. And yeah. that's just a sensor, right? So this is the hard thing that uh, that the, the car manufacturers have to deal with. And that's why you see this technology not being, you know, full-fledged out. Which was everybody was believing, you know, when I started in 2013, we are at 2022. Yeah, you know, we're gonna have self-driving vehicles. Was well, a little too early, I think.
1: Yeah, it's well, really interesting. I would, I would highly underscore that the, the economics and yeah. the ownership model really matter, and it matters. The, the outcome matters too, right? How the vehicle will be utilized and how it will be. Uh, utilize on a people mile standpoint, not a vehicle mile standpoint. So how many people we, can we put in the vehicle and how many miles can we go with multiple people in the vehicle? So it's, yeah, I mean.
8: Yeah, and, and let me just jump in here, um, because, uh, I think what we can clarify the end customer, of, of is not willing to pay $10,000 or $20,000 more for that. But us as sometimes autonomous vehicle makers, we are willing to pay and that's why you see Most autonomous vehicle companies will have LIDAR sensors and other types of sensors on the vehicle. One that you didn't mention was a thermal imaging camera, which is something Neuro has incorporated onto our vehicles, especially to protect those, again, vulnerable road users, where uh, a thermal camera can do a, a really good job of detecting a, a person or animal um, out in the roadway, especially when, you know, uh, maybe a camera sensor at night isn't going to do as good of a job doing that. But what we do is then we amortize that cost over all of the deliveries we're doing, right? So maybe your delivery is increasing one cent, two cents, three cents, because this is a shared vehicle, this is a vehicle that a lot of people will be utilizing for delivery and that safety is so important that, you know, we're willing to spend the money up front to put that type of sensor on the vehicle and then increase the utilization to recover those costs. And so um, that's something that kind of we think about a, a, as we're going through the autonomous vehicle development process. Yeah, and maybe
1: let's, uh, as we, you know, I'd be curious, particularly what Lisa you and Alante think think about this, particularly angling towards where does the the public sector fit in here in terms of providing infrastructure that supports the technology? Because I think what we're getting at here, too, is that um, if we want to see more public deployments, are there are there things that the public sector can bring to the table to ensure optimal outcomes and things like that? But I, I think it's we should make sure we define the term level two, which you used and level four, just so if there's anyone in the audience that doesn't know these are s a e just google it, yeah, just google it. There's this thing called Google. <laughs> it was invented a couple a um, couple hot seconds ago um, uh yeah, uh to, level two vehicle basically is more or less well if we see uh, certain advanced features on cars, adaptive cruise control, lane keeping.
7: Uh, yeah, we we say at Nissan we say it's you know it's hands on, right? So eyes off, hands on, or hands on and eyes off, right? That's how we define. And if you have hands off and eyes off, you're at level four, right? Um, so that's kind of like um, you know how we define it. But but ADAS is basically that there is a driver in the loop.
1: And so and, and typically they go up to level five. Um, John, I. I Karis, the guy, the ex-CEO of Waymo, well, I can't pronounce his last name, so I'm not going to try. Uh, but I've heard him say level five is a myth um, because even like a human driver is not going to be able to drive in every condition in all the time. So, uh
7: yeah, I, you know, I, I have to say, you know, I've been yelling at these level five stuff since I started. Human beings can basically keep three categories in their mind, right? So, of course, engineers have to create five. It's, it's just like absolutely. Well, actually,
8: actually, there's six with level zero. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah of course,
7: well. six. All right, all right. You know, That's and, like uh, no it's,
1: no it's, windshield wipers, right? <laughs> right Alante, yeah. what do you think?
6: For sure. I definitely <laughs> want to, like, underscore both of you all's points um, about the fact that this new technology um, is expensive, but companies are being very creative about use cases and creating new use cases. So Neuro is definitely one great example for um delivery. Also, I know, I don't know how deep we are getting into like freight and trucking, but that's also a yeah. place where there's an application for autonomy. And then of course, passengers have talked about crews and other companies that are now using this technology and absorbing the cost and then kind of dividing it in a little bit more creative than the past us all owning our own vehicle. There's a lot of positive benefits to that as well since we are no longer having to own our own cars. I mean, personally, I've loved Uber and Lyft. I'd love for it to be electric. I'd love for it to be autonomous, where I could just go where I want to go and never drive again and connect me to my existing public transit, of course. Um So I think that the technology in itself is on the road. We see it um, with Neuro having deployed. We see Cruise on the road. We see Waymo on the road. Um, but as far as and more expansive deployment, there are a couple of things that need to be in place, some things at the federal level, but I think something that cities are thinking about with pilots is helping helping to uh, kind of create inventory of what needs to be in place. And Eliza, I'm sure you're way more uh, well-versed in what the city needs than I am, but I know the pilots are helping to inform that information.
5: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, one thing we are seeing with the Treasure Island pilot is that The vehicles, um, from the non-technology person, um, they need a lot of technology, and people also need a lot of, um, you know, basic infrastructure to have these vehicles work. Um, And that infrastructure and the technology that's available, whether it's, like, just reliable Wi-Fi for starters, varies across communities. So, you know, that enabling infrastructure and having it be consistent – Um, across communities, across cities, so that everyone can use these vehicles, have equally reliable service, um, is one of the um, big things that we noticed sort of early on. Um, Another piece that I would also highlight is from the the rider standpoint, we noticed that the vehicles, um, they vary, right? They vary in how many people they can carry, how ADA accessible they are, um, and from the public standpoint, all of those features come into play. Um, and so, you know, it's for the pilot, it was a really important consideration of um, what types of vehicles can operate in the community that we have and also with the infrastructure that we have. Treasure Island is currently going through major redevelopment, so there's a lot of challenges there. So all of that starts coming into play.
1: Maybe, can you tell us a little more detail about what you envision as, as a Treasure Island pilot? Because I think it's so sure. <laughs> new. I don't think a lot of people, even that are watching online, yeah. really know about the project.
5: Yeah. So Treasure Island, just for context, is this island in between San Francisco and Oakland. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty small. It's about two miles. Um, there's Yerba Buena Island is attached to it. So Treasure Island is very flat. Yerba Buena Island is very hilly. Um, so the pilot that we um, are working on now is on Treasure Island, so the flat part of the island. It's about a one and a half mile circulator. It would operate for nine months, um, have free rides for the public, um, and we're working through the, through a community outreach process to understand um, kind of service priorities and, and different community priorities so that we can shape the actual service. Um, with that community input, and also, you know, working with SFMTA, um, the the um, agency that operates the bus service, um, the redevelopment on the island. Um, the island is being redeveloped to have about 8,000 new units. 27% of those would be affordable. So there's just a, a lot of um, constant changes on the island, um, new roadways, all of that is is happening.
1: So maybe I can drill down a little more because yeah. I want to understand myself a little uh-huh. more the vision of the project. Is it is it is it a circulator or are these <laughs> going to be door to door service that feeds into the the municipal transit agencies buses? How does how's that how do you envision that working?
5: Yeah so it would be an effectively a circulator on the island. Um one of the newer um, transportation changes on the island is a ferry service connecting um, San Francisco's ferry terminal to Treasure Island. So it would be a circulator. It would um, connect the ferry terminal on the island with the um, kind of the community destinations, you know, supermarket, community center with island residents. Um, so people on the island could use it um, sort of for they're on-island trips and also folks coming in to visit could use the shuttle as a way to get around and, you know, visit local businesses as well.
1: Yeah, I, I think – so we have a question here from the audience I want to highlight too because uh, the question is basically talks about um, this idea of replacing rideshare transit trips and how's the data showing things. And I think what, what we're hearing from all of you is that there's – this is a non-binary situation and you can have situations where you're serving as a, as a quasi – an AV is serving as a quasi-transit service. And you can also have private autonomous com- companies that actually fill these gaps in whether or not they're geographic or time-based gaps that fill those gaps in the network. And I wonder I, – you know, I think I've been thinking a lot about like the kind of the physical infrastructure in terms of what kind of community investment we should do to kind of make this non-binary future – happen. And Lante, I'm thinking a lot about your PhD and kind of how you're thinking about service equity. And I I wondered if we could start to tap into that in terms of what kinds of investments we need to make to ensure that both public and private operators really provide the maximal service to our most vulnerable people.
6: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So in my dissertation, i Literally created kind of like a prioritization scheme of determining where in certain cities is there um already an unmet transit need, so latent transit demand, and from that overlaying low-income populations, minority populations, and then prioritizing those areas for service first. Can
1: I stop you first because you said latent transit demand, yes. and, and this is a very transportationy term. Can we can we just pause and yeah. drill down on latent demand?
6: Yeah, and I started with unmet, so oh, same same no. so <laughs> synonyms. I promise. Like, just unmet demand, pretty much like, if you were to live in a neighborhood that, um, didn't have service, but you don't own a vehicle, you need transit, right?
1: Or you want to make it, you want to make a trip, but you don't have a way to make a trip.
6: Exactly, exactly that. So, um, with this prioritization scheme, we are able to look at how autonomous vehicles, be it shuttles or an actual, like, four to six passenger vehicle, can, Extend essentially give people service from that neighborhood to the existing transit. So the nearest bus stop. These are places um, in different cities. I looked at New York, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Pittsburgh to see like these are places that do not have transit within walking distance. No bus line or bus stop or, or like your rail. And so if we're able to improve That service for these individuals, we're increasing access and we're actually increasing transit ridership because these are individuals who would have taken transit if it was an option available to them anyway. So I think that's one really great opportunities for cities to take time. And I think a lot of cities are thinking about equity right now and prioritizing. These are the areas in our cities that need service. I think that autonomous vehicle companies are hungry to show where AV, where AVs can provide positive outcomes for those who have a great need. So I think the meeting of those two are really a match made in heaven, in my opinion. Um, And so I think that's a really great opportunity. And then there's still a lot of um, policy things behind that, figuring out the levers to actualize this great match.
8: And if I can add on to that, um, you know, because something that Neuro is thinking about is these autonomous vehicles for delivery services – and you know, it's not that there's a new product. Delivery services, of course, exist today. Right? People can use delivery services, but they're really, really expensive. And so, as we're thinking about auto- where autonomous vehicles can benefit, we can drastically reduce the cost with the autonomous vehicle. And of course, you layer on top of that the all-electric vehicles that we have with our our zero-occupant neuro vehicles. Um, you can drastically reduce that cost making it more accessible to folks that are currently left out of uh, out of the current systems right if you think about the cost of a bus ticket um imagine if you just didn't have to get on the bus in the first place you could Spend that time with with family. Um, you could spend that time, you know, with with kids or friends. You know, there's so many m- more things that people would love to be doing than going on that trip to the grocery store, especially if you have to take public transportation or just public transportation doesn't exist. You see people building grocery s- store yeah. list shopping lists based on what they can carry, based on rather than what they actually need. Did you want to add something? Yeah,
6: and I, I think that's a great point, and I want to expand with even people who live in... Food deserts, right? Maybe they do have access to transit, but it's a thirty minute, an hour trip just to get groceries. That is going to be such an excellent use case where they can now have access and they're not spending that time on transit. And
8: and it's really about autonomous vehicles reducing the cost to make of, of that delivery services to make that available. Something you can really only do if you take that person out of the vehicle. Um and you know, it's something that working with transit agencies, Neuros looked into as well where we have um, some of our delivery services right now is in Houston, Texas as well, the mm-hmm. the most diverse city in the United States. And working with our, our partner, Kroger Grocery Stores there, we actually did a, a research pilot with Houston Metro, uh, Houston's transit agency, working with them and their paratransit trips. So these are trips where um, Houston Metro needs to send out uh, – accessible vehicle to an individual's house because they can't use existing services as they exist. We'll take them to the grocery store. Um, That trip has to be booked 24 hours in advance. Um, you know, whether they show up on time is kind of, um, up in the air, but then they have to, the person has to go do their grocery shopping and then wait for the vehicle to come back. Um, again, scheduled 24 hours in advance, that return trip as well, um, and, and take them back. That's really expensive for the transit agency to operate. And it's just not a great experience for the customer. And so we actually have conducted a pilot, um, to see kind of how neuro delivery can fill that gap, um, how we can perform a really good service for the customer at a really low cost. Um, and it's something that we're, we're really po- seeing some positive results there. And, you know, that's an impact that AVs can have without any additional necessarily government funding or infrastructure, but just with kind of the widespread deployment.
7: Can, can, can I push back a little bit? Is that good?
8: That's not allowed in
1: this not allowed.
7: Because <laughs> I, I hear this a lot like oh it can be so much cheaper and and i i would like to see the numbers um <clears throat> amazon just stopped their delivery service robots and i know a little bit about it and it basically is that for 300 robots they needed 200 people to operate the things and maintain them and so the economics is just not there so i wonder how neuro can do that and not just neuro i mean i you know so the Cruise has the same problem, right? I mean, maintenance of the vehicles, cleaning of the vehicles. Uber, in my opinion, is a great service. The drivers have their own cars. They're not employees. They maintain their cars. That's not the cost that Uber has.
1: Yeah. And they
7: they still don't make make money. (laughs) Although now I hear that they're finally starting to go up a little bit. But so, so the question I have for these services is how can you make it economically available? It's not necessarily the technology. I mean, what I've found in my own life trying to build a business, it ain't the technology. The technology is not the problem. It's the business model that is really hard, you know, and I just wonder how, how economics work.
1: Well, I'd like to, maybe you could, you could talk a little more and let's drill down on the, Kind of the, I, I would say the cost-sharing approach that the i680 project is. When you talked about, so you talked about the ACC, this idea of like this lightweight technology, which yeah. we're going to hear. I think I think Sahas from the next panel can talk a lot, a little bit about kind of this idea of harnessing data in existing vehicles. So we'll, we'll we'll get to that. But I think that what you're doing, you're saying we can harness the best in automation maybe today and optimize maybe existing fleets by just pushing. A couple vehicles out there. Can you talk about that? Because I think it may inform the way we talk well, about I, yeah, infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think
7: too. in any case, right? And and I, I would love to hear how the city, you know, and Treasure Island. By the way, if you go to Marina, I'll, I'll be a customer. I, I have my soul. <laughs> but um, you know, what is the business model? So we we have this 5G connectivity, AI in the cloud. We can do safe intersections. We can make our cars look around the corner, you know, no LIDAR, you know, any no sensor can look around the corner. Right. We can do that and we can make it safer. Who's willing to pay for it? This is the hard thing and the same thing with traffic congestion. And so in the end, I come to the cities and I come to, you know, the public infrastructure and maybe the infrastructure bill will help right? Uh, Billions of dollars will be invested and we'll create infrastructure. I'm a little afraid that we will have the wrong infrastructure because we're just spending it quickly. But I mean, this to me is, is really the hard problem and this is why the management school, you know, should really try to solve this. So, you know, how can we make the cost in terms of safety and congestion? How can we spread this out that it is affordable? Because, um, I'm not so sure if if you as a if you have your own car driving on 680 are willing to pay 10 bucks a month for other people to have the benefit for you for not standing in traffic. (laughs) You know, I don't know, right? This is really a tough issue. The technology is not the issue. Um, Anyway, so yeah, so so we're trying to figure out the business model. What is Contra Costa County willing to pay? What is the federal government willing to pay? Are they going to install the infrastructure or not, right? This is kind of – and then how can we make all the OEMs operate in this model? It just won't work
1: for NISA. So, I mean, specifically what type of infrastructure are you looking at for that? Well, so
7: it's 5G connectivity with one of the cell phone companies. It is, you know, Amazon cloud services to run the AI and store the data, um it is uh, maybe cameras on the uh, you know better cameras than they have today in in you know maybe half a mile you know along the highway that is sending this data continuously to the cloud that's the kind of and this could
1: be this could benefit the entire fleet irrespective of whether or not if they were automated or not.
7: Um, well in, in terms of congestion, yeah, yeah, because if you're not one of those 10% of the vehicles you still have the benefit. You know, so how do you? But how do you spread this cost around? Well,
1: yeah, and, and, and I think it's difficult. It's a different answer in the in the European Union, in other countries, or you know, other areas around the world where yeah. those those costs are borne differently.
7: Yeah, we we have a, a long-term research collaboration with uh, the Netherlands, the the province of North Holland, specifically Amsterdam, city of Amsterdam, Schiphol Airport, and and uh, the province there. And, yeah, in the Netherlands, they have the best, you know, traffic management system with everything is connected. You know, all their traffic lights in the entire country is connected. Um, and, and they pay that from federal taxes, right? Yeah. Uh, so if you're willing to pay taxes, we can do it. <laughs> but, you know, uh, go vote.
5: I just have one piece to add on the infrastructure. Um You know, we're seeing a lot more of the AVs becoming EVs, um, and the EV component uh, uh, makes a whole other um, infrastructure barrier to make sure that there's um, charging available um, and accessible, um, where to put it, how to pay for it, right? It's like a whole other layer of the infrastructure question that needs solving.
8: Yeah, and you know to to respond to that or add on to that, you know, it's something that is not going to be a national solution. You know, Neuro with operations in the Bay Area, Arizona, Houston, Texas, now Las Vegas, Nevada, and Los Angeles as well. Each of those different areas have different existing electric vehicle charging capacity needs. Um, what's happening on the ground there, and so you know we might need to vary our strategy based on where we're deploying, what resources might be available at the city level. Um, And it's something that, you know, we we love to engage with those types of conversations to figure out, um, you know, how can we, work together to build the right EV infrastructure that can be shared and benefited from everyone in the community, in addition to helping with our autonomous vehicles, because as, as, back to what Martin was saying as well, that helps reduce the cost, right? Um, you know, the high utilization of vehicles, the high utilization of the EV charging, all of those different things help to um lower the costs, and you really want to make sure you're building the right technology and leveraging the right resources to to make that work for everyone in the community. Vote. No, <laughs>
1: no I, and I think that there, we do have some, some draft EV. We can't put you on the spot, Elisa, but I know that Tilly, your, your colleague, uh, the executive director of the CTA actually is working on some stuff that, that would help accelerate some of this, this EV infrastructure, which is a really important point. And I think some of the questions are asking about, um, you know, kind of the benefits of Fleets in and particularly A V fleets is that in most cases we're we're seeing that they are EVs. So even if we're seeing a substitution for rideshare, we're seeing that we do have the benefit of a greener a greener fleet in this situation. But so I, I wanna maybe hear from you. Can all I of, say
7: one thing on this? I mean No, you, you well, it's not I, I, you know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> so EV's great. Love EVs, more EVs. Ten percent EVs and our grid will stop. You won't have electricity anymore tonight. Right, so there is there is a huge issue there that we capacity, yeah, capacity on the grid is and by the way, it's not just California. I mean, California has a, but they have the same problem in the Netherlands, right? And there, the EV population is growing drastically and dramatically, and they're already seeing this, and and they just, you know, how how to solve that problem. So now,
1: you remember we had the Finnish delegation here this summer, and they were asking not only is it a capacity issue in California. It's an inability to share back. You know, basically, the the, yeah. the grid isn't that smart.
7: Yeah. Say. So, so having bidirectional charging and you know, and and all this technology still needs to be implemented before you can actually reach this massive, you know, you know, pay and you know, it's going to be cheap. And, you know, it's going to be slow, slow, slow going. So it's
1: yes and, and. I think is what we're saying. It's sorry electrification and automation. Yeah, yeah, it's both. So, well, so I, we got a lot of questions about, from the audience, about, um, this idea, and you started to get into it, Dan, about kind of different operational, uh, domains, but, but different kind of urban landscapes. And so, I'm gonna combine two questions a little bit here about kind of, w- what are the use cases, you know, we, we've seen uh, kind of urban deployments a lot of times and just kind of these complex urban situations, but what would allow for more suburban or rural applications, um, what happens when the the for example it's really too costly for a company to go in and do the 3d mapping in uh, that's required to run some of these vehicles uh, in a more rural location does that mean that, that the public sector needs to step up with some of this 3d mapping um, and then how do we how do we actually move towards you know carless yet automated cities is that is that a vision is there a way to to kind of make that happen? How how do we get there? So maybe we could. uh cause These are two questions from our from our audience here. lot is jumping in.
6: Oh, I was like, a, didn't you say, Dan? <laughs> Tee up Dan for that. Dan already started us okay, on this topic. Okay. Okay. Um, I think regarding like, can we, I guess, achieve like a carless future? Um, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that's within my scope of something I've really thought about deeply, to be quite honest. Um, but like a, a future where we have like no no um, privately owned vehicles. I mean, I think that m- could be within reality for an urban area where the density is at a certain level. But I definitely struggle with maybe wanting to say the same thing for rural settings, Um that being just literally the way that these areas are are structured and mapped out but i think autonomy does p- can t- potentially provide an off, um opportunity there where maybe their service to specific uh, services, to specific areas, something maybe similar to the pilot where that's going to like very pointed areas and a service available that way. Um, that might be when point to point is really appropriate. So going from door to door service, taking someone from where they want to go to the grocery store and back, that might be an appropriate time where AVs can still provide the service. But I do think, to say that we would live in a future where there's everyone is not required to own a car, um, I'm not sure that that can be our reality um, more in in the in the near future. Just because there's a lot more technology development, and also that rural setting just has a totally different set of needs um, than the urban setting.
8: Yeah, And let me maybe continue on what I, what I was talking about a little bit earlier. You know, um, I'm not going to make a mistake of being on stage and predicting some future out there like some other colleagues in the, <laughs> the autonomous vehicle industry have done over the last five or ten years. But, you know, it's looking at what can be done in the short term and what can be done in the long term. And you you don't need to give up your, your big truck right away if that's what you use to go camping or, you know, the snow vehicle to get up to Tahoe. Um, you don't need to give that up right now. But could you replace that shopping trip that you would normally do in that vehicle with an electric vehicle, with an autonomous vehicle today? And for some people, that answer is yes, and hopefully that will grow and expand. Um, When you look at suburban, rural, urban areas, um, you know, Neuro has focused right now, at least in the more suburban areas where we feel it's a little easier to operate and we can deliver a really good, Delivery service to the people that live in, you know, this zip code and then expand it to more zip codes beyond that. And as we grow and expand, hopefully more people will be able to get those services. Um, it doesn't mean we're, we're doing the wrong thing. The fact that we can't service everyone today. If you, if you think back to where maybe the aviation industry was a hundred plus years ago, um, when, you know, they were, Orville's were, were developing the, the first plane. It couldn't make it over a river, let alone the Atlantic Ocean. It It doesn't mean they were working on the wrong technology. It doesn't mean they were, you know, this technology wouldn't at some point become valuable. And it it really took, in fact, you know, again, with the aviation industry, airmail, right? The federal government coming in and doing delivery services with aviation industry um, in, you know, short hops. You know, it they, they couldn't make it across the country, but it could make it to different postal destinations. Um, and, you know, that started the where we are today with the aviation industry. But the aviation industry isn't even done yet, right, with all the companies working on the electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, the supersonic, like all of the different stuff. And so the Industry will continue to evolve, and I think we're still at the very, very early stages of this autonomous technology. And some people are able to experience the magic of that right now in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, and some of the areas in Houston, um, in Arizona. And so, you know, it's something that's really, really exciting, um, but it, it's not there yet. And, and we do need a lot more people to come in and help us solve these problems, to have these discussions, to figure out where the right, appropriate deployment of this technology is at the early stages, and then, you know, where do we go from here?
7: I do think it's a choice. You know, society has a choice. Um, the city of Amsterdam has made the choice. There will be no more cars in the city. There's going to be a boundary, and from that, from that boundary on, you can only have a taxi going in, or public transportation. They're going to, they're, I forget the numbers, but the huge, like 100,000, 200,000 housing being built in the city of Amsterdam, no garages, no parking spaces, and this will drive, you know, cities without cars. And then, you know, that doesn't mean there's no transportation. So what they're doing is they're building so-called micro hubs, micro mobility hubs, you know, in
1: about say it in Dutch, because we'll I love this word, mobility hub. Oh, I don't even know. Yeah, okay, I, I, can't, I can't pronounce it either. <laughs> I think it's the Dutch way say micro
7: mobility hub. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Mobility, yeah. But anyway, so but they're gonna do about 100 kilometers out of the cities. There's little rural areas. There's you know they have great public transportation there, but it's still hard for people to come, and so they take the car to come into the city. So they have these small hubs. You know, autonomous uh, shuttle services will bring the people from home to those hubs. From there, you can take a train into the city on the edge. Then you can take a subway or you can take a tram. So it's possible. You just have to decide that's what you want as a society. And I think if you want that, you can make it work. Um, I That's just my opinion, but, you know... um, We'll we'll see if Americans want that kind of society.
1: What well, I mean, be? I mean, Alante, are you going to chime in there? Was I, I saw you for? Per-
6: it's just like well. The- it's perfect because Amsterdam's urban. It's a dense, highly dense city, and it's urban, right? So I think that. that
7: it's also very good. old, right? So the the streets yeah. were not okay. built for cars.
6: Okay, I, I haven't <laughs> been yet, so I,
1: I'm. Well, yeah, I, so, I, I mean, I, but Amsterdam also has suburbs, and so that's where I was thinking about our some of our mutual friends, yeah. Martin, who 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 live, for example, out in Odwater or Snedderwald, and way outside the city, and yeah, and farmland. Through, there, right? is, yeah. uh, there is there is there are these different urban frameworks where you have to partner on different solutions. And that's where, what we were talking about. Lisa, I would like to maybe, as we kind of bring us to close, you had a question to me before we started, which was like, what does partnership look like? You know, I, we're, you're at a public agency and you're saying like, well, you know, I'm partnering with a couple private sector vendors over the next couple of years. I don't know. You didn't say how long your project was. And some people in the audience were interested, but, you know, what is, what does successful innovation partnership look like? And what do we need to do? And if anybody else wants to chime on that, like, how do we, how do we do true multi-sector public-private partnerships?
5: Yeah, so the pilot will be, or it's planned to be in 2023, so we'd be completing it early 2024, just in terms of timing. Um, and I, you know, partnerships are, um, complicated. There's a lot of moving pieces. Um, through the, um, shuttle pilot that we've been working on at the TA, um, we had a, a long process of reaching out to, um, different vendors and hearing, you know, what they need to operate, what does, you know, what technology is needed, what is, um, timing look like, you know, getting all of these questions so that we could inform and create a procurement process that, uh, meets the community needs and also, um, you know, meets the needs of the industry so that we can come together and partner. Um, and that was, a a long process to understand and it, you know, it helped us form um, a good operating agreement, a good um, pilot concept. Um, and then we also have um, in San Francisco um, some guiding principles for new mobility that I think, you know, are important to look at. They were adopted in 2018, um, but there's like these 10 principles, things like labor, um, equity, accessibility, um, tra- you know, supporting transit, all of these pieces that come into play that, um, matter a lot to the city and help us make sure that new options like AVs um, support our long-term goals. So it's you know looking at both sides of the of the puzzle.
8: Yeah, and maybe I'll just chime in here. Um, lastly, um, you know, we do partner with a lot of cities in a couple of different ways, the one being business partnerships, which, you know, cities actually need to move out around a lot of stuff, or they fund nonprofit agencies that need to do things like food delivery. Um, I know Cruz is working on some food delivery pilots, uh, Neuro is as well, um, with uh, nonprofit um, organizations and food banks. But there's also partnerships um, around education. Um, you know, how do we educate the people who, again, are all sharing the road about these new autonomous vehicles that we have on the road that folks are seeing? Um, how do we work on partnerships for, to inspire the next generation of, of workforce as well? So how do we partner with, with schools to teach kids in STEM classes about this type of technology that they may want to get involved in? And then, you know, on workforce development side as well, uh, Nura has a partnership with one of the community colleges on the peninsula, De Anza College, where they have a great uh, automotive technician program where they you know go you go through and you get a certificate to become a an auto mechanic we worked with them to develop an autonomous electric vehicle technician pathway program and certificate so that way students that are going through this program are excited about automotive tech careers can actually layer on maybe a computer science course or two and specialize in working on these autonomous electric vehicles to help maintain the vehicles that are going to be out on the roadway. And so, you know, there's a variety of different types of partnerships beyond also the business partnerships where, you know, we can all come together to to work together on this.
7: Yeah, I I, I would, you know, say that I think every um, industry, you know, the OEMs, right, they're very much willing to work together um, with you know, policymakers and with cities and, and government agency. For instance, in Japan, Nissan has, you know, there is this new new city um, being developed called Namie City, which is where the Fukushima earthquake was, and they're trying to redevelop it. And Nissan is providing the entire mobility uh, service there. And it's not just autonomous, right? These are also shared mobility services um and because the oems you know we know that we have to work together in order to go to the new next form of transportation and so there is this there's a lot of willingness i think on on that side to work together in terms of what are your requirements what are you willing to you know to to implement what is because it is a if we don't do it together it will not happen lante last word
6: yeah i think just to kind of Bring us all together is we're working with varying levels of imperfection, Yeah. right? Like on both sides of this equation, but I do think there's a desire to figure it out, and I think that's what's really promising about the technology.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. That's a good way to end, and it's kind of like a spirit of collaboration and not being too skeptical when you enter into these conversations. So uh, let's give this group a hand. This was a really rich conversation. All right, so... um we're going to keep on rolling, so I'm going to ask uh, and really kind of dive in more. We talked a little bit about um, kind of the partnership piece there, and I think you're going to see now we're going to open the aperture a little bit and focus on kind of vehicles that are out there now. So maybe Sahas, if you guys, uh, uh, Barack, you guys want to come up? Uh, we're going to roll into kind of our next panel. I Two of you I hadn't met in person, so this is awesome. So uh this is great, and I've known this guy forever. So we can uh talk like a little bit about data, smart cities, uh where are we going with existing infrastructure? You want to introduce yourself?
9: Thank you, yeah. Thanks for having me. Do we know each other for so long, really? Yeah, so long. <laughs> yeah, hi, I'm Timo Schalk. I'm with BMW. I'm the uh BMW group representative here in the United States on the West Coast. And um, I really enjoyed the conversation that you just had uh, on stage here, and I would love to to really uh, get uh, get into some of the details here as well. Just a couple of uh, words about BMW. Um, most of them, most of you know uh, certainly BMW. We have, um, and I'm really proud of to say that we have a long-lasting um, a sustainability strategy compared to in the industry, and uh, we we work on that strategy, we, we develop it, and when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions and reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, um, we figured out that um, the major emissions come certainly from the from the supply chain, uh, from the production, and the third one is the use phase of vehicle. And what we are talking today is how can we actually reduce the emissions from the use phase of our vehicles. So, first off, uh, electrification is certainly one point. Uh, Martin just made the point that there is still a lot to do, uh, like the, grids, the grid is not really uh, – capable of, of 100% ev as of as of today um but only replacing conventional vehicles by electric vehicles would certainly not solve the the, the challenge of uh, challenges of our mobility uh, for example so data and ai and autonomous vehicles can really support this and we um uh, we just um, announced like i think yesterday or the day before yesterday that the new 7 series our flagship model um, is the first car to actually use uh, the HERE HD uh, real-time map, uh, enabling two-level uh, two-plus uh, autonomous driving on the street, which is great. And BMW defined uh, two different actually modes of, of of driving recently. One is ease, and the other the other is boost. And ease meaning um, ease would also summarize uh, uh, autonomous driving. Because this is when I'm maybe on my daily commute. This is not really when I want to make a joyride, like in the and like in the, in the weekends. That would be then the boost. And and autonomous vehicles and all the data behind that will certainly make it possible for us to to keep on providing uh, a good uh, product to our customers.
1: Thanks, Timo. Uh, can you to just maybe provide us a little bit win- more window into how you ended up? In the U.S., working on... Sure, yeah. You know, uh, sorry. And, like,
9: I, I, just, I just realized, yeah. I am with you before, for well over 10 years now, so I'm a bit longer with the automotive industry than you are. When I started back in 2012 in Munich, um, that was uh, all about electromobility, mobility, and there were a lot of, of government um, projects going on, especially on fast charging in, in Germany. So that was my first touch point, actually. And then back in 2014, uh, we founded a center of competence for urban mobility because we, we realized that electrification would also depend on on cities and how much cities actually pave the way for electric vehicles. So uh, I was responsible for our cooperation with Hamburg, which is the second biggest city in Germany. And what we did is actually we, we reached out to, to all the different agencies of the city and, and said, okay, please define you. What is your most pressing uh, target? What's, what's what, what problem do you really need to solve? and then we can figure out how to really solve this chicken and egg problem between the infrastructure for example and the demand for the for those uh, kind of infrastructure that is that has to be in place and we were really successful we used our, our car share fleet drive now to create an instant demand for uh, public charging infrastructure uh, we were talking about privileged parking for car share vehicles for electric vehicles and all that stuff to make it as easy as possible for people to at least try it out, and then maybe to see, okay, this is a good alternative. I don't need my my private vehicle every single ride. Maybe it's only, I don't know, one third of the time. So that's that's basically how I how I ended up being in this space here.
1: Awesome. I wore my Bavarian shirt, by the way.
9: Oh yeah, I appreciate <laughs>
1: it. <laughs> I didn't have any smart car gear, Sahas. I had a mug, but it's still in my office. So, do you want to introduce yourself really and talk about what smart car does a little bit?
0: Sure. My name is Sahas. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a startup called Smart Car. We've been around for about five or six years, and uh, we really got started um, when uh, uh, maybe about five, six years ago, when we were actually trying to build an app. My co-founder and I for a car. And we found that that was actually really hard to do. Um, you can't go to developer any car companies brand.com. They typically don't have API documentation or SDKs available. So when it comes to trying to innovate or build an application that integrates with the car you own or an application you want to build for someone else to use, that was incredibly challenging. So we realized that the big opportunity or the gap in the market was the fact that there isn't a way to build apps for cars and there wasn't a common developer platform that folks could go integrate with to build an app once and have it work everywhere. So, uh, uh, we went out and started a company called Smart Car. Uh, we've now raised about 36 million in venture capital. We're a little, about team, about 40 to 45 folks all in California. And, uh, we now are integrated with about 33 different car brands, so about 9,500 developers using this platform and, uh, about 153 million cars integrated across North America and Europe, uh, making SmartCar actually now the world's largest connected car platform. So we're pretty excited about all the exciting things that folks are building on top of this technology.
1: And you're an interesting story too, because you're, you're kind of born and raised Bay Area, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, Stanford, right? Is that- uh,
0: no, unfortunately not. I wish, uh, my parents wish, um, but,
1: uh, <laughs> uh,
0: it's, it's even worse. Uh, I, uh, went to UC Davis, uh, but actually ended up dropping out before my fourth year. So my co-founder is actually my brother. He graduated from UC Berkeley. So uh um usually at the family get togethers and parties, uh they would act like I didn't exist since I didn't graduate and and he he was the proud one uh that uh always had the college degree. So uh that's a little bit. About uh, yeah, us. I'm
1: glad we got there. I've heard this heard this little this little narrative before. It's fun. So, Brock, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Oh, we we do we have a dead one? How does this work? Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, we have pink. Hello? Yeah,
10: All right, pink. Alright, so yeah, I'm Brock. Uh, I'm a partner at AutoTech Ventures. Uh, we are an early stage venture capital firm. Uh, we have close to $500 million asset under management. Uh, and we are on our third fund, which is $175 million. And we, our sweet spot is uh, CDN uh, Series A uh, stage startups. Uh, and uh, we only invest in ground transportation, mobility related startups. And we invest globally, and within that, uh, we do EVs, AVs, uh, manufacturing, s- supply chain, logistics, repair, insurance, the whole uh, value chain uh, within mobility.
1: And, uh, and how does one end up in, in a VC role like yours? Because I think that's, we have a lot of folks in our master's program interested in like that pathway and wh- wh- how does we how do you end up in that? That's very easy.
10: indirect, a yeah. very windy road. Uh, so I, uh, I studied electrical engineering at Caltech, graduated in back in 2004 and did actually engineering. So I work for a, a, manufacturer of heavy-haul locomotives called Electromotive Diesel yes. in Chicago. And it's actually funny that, like, I remember that back in the day, the locomotives were also sending data
4: uh
10: <laughs> about their, you know, status and the fuel level, this, that. And we used to do that with text messages. So back in the day, like, you know, your data connected with us, text messages from the locomotive. Anyway, uh so I did that for several years, then management consultant, uh marketing and sales strategy. And then I got my MBA from University of Chicago. Uh, and there, uh, after that, uh, I started an accelerator program in Chicago uh, with my partner, bringing foreign startups to the U.S. market. Uh, so this is, think of it as like Techstars or Y Combinator, but for foreign startups, foreign entrepreneurs that have a product or a service for the U.S. market. Uh, so did that for many, many years. Uh, had my own startups, uh, failed, but learned a lot of good uh, lessons. Uh, and then uh, I joined the because of that uh, accelerator, I was going back and forth between Europe and the U.S. quite a bit. So I joined the VC firm uh, in Europe, Eastern Europe, making investments in Eastern Europe, uh, and worked there for several years. And then uh, I said it's time to move back to the United States and join Autotech back in 2019.
1: Well, wow, great journey. Yeah. It's great. Thanks. Yeah. So maybe we can just dive in now that we've kind of introduced ourselves and uh, you provided some humor, Sahas, to start us off. So maybe I'll pick on you first. Uh (laughs) So when we think about kind of future of data-driven vehicles, you know, kind of what are what are really the opportunities? And you're you're there and working with kind of existing fleets. And I think we heard a little bit of that if you were listening to kind of Martin talk about existing fleets and data. You know, what are the opportunities from, from your vantage point for looking at data as we look at today's fleet and then maybe the future automated autonomous fleet? You know, what, what do you see as kind of some low-hanging fruit and then maybe more aspirational goals?
0: So as a starting point, I think there's a little bit of a misnomer about where the value is um, in the automotive industry. Uh, there's a lot of folks keep talking about data, 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 and, uh, you know, we've heard the phrase, like, "data is oil, and first off, that doesn't make sense to me when we're going electric, so that's a r- really strange uh, phrase that the automotive industry really likes to use. Uh, um, but the second piece I'd say is uh, we think, kind of like we're in San Francisco, so great analogies, maybe the gold rush. There's a lot of folks who came out here thinking gold is a big opportunity, but the value a layer ended up being in the shovels and picks, and we voice everything else that came along uh, rather than the gold itself. So when it comes to uh, automotive, uh, there's been a lot of enthusiasm uh, uh, misplaced around the data itself, in my opinion. But rather where the value is is in the developer tooling and layers that enable uh, software creators and developers to actually go integrate with cars and build applications that actually create new experiences and value for people who drive those vehicles. So – and the data itself, um, uh, in our opinion – does not belong to the OEMs it does not belong to your insurer it does not belong to the government it belongs to the vehicle owner and that's been another piece that strange uh, in every industry it's pretty clear who, where the uh, who owns the data but the automotive industry in my opinion is the one place where for some reason there's still some uh lack of clarity around it.
1: I want to go there, but can we wait to go there because I, I want to, I want to go there too because there's there's more I want to unravel there on who owns the data but uh, maybe mr. Timo do you have any any thoughts about kind of you know what are the opportunities for data or maybe you know can we tearing off what was a maybe there's opportunities for app development or um, application. Uh, to the vehicular sector. And ma- maybe it's not in in kind of private occupancy vehicles. Maybe it's in fleets. Maybe it's in platooning vehicles. I'd be interested in seeing, kind of hearing your vision there.
9: Yeah, totally. I, I agree with to what you said. Data is not, they don't have an actual value, right? It's not gold. It's only um, something that you can use to make a service or an application or something work or work better in the future. And this is where I think is the value for us as an OEM so our customers so we are a premium manufacturer right and our customers expect a high level of of performance and of quality in the vehicle and this applies not only to the vehicle like how fast it can go or so but it also applies to the connected services and um and so this is something that that really we can make use of and we do it today we add layers to our uh, to our cars like um, I don't know. Black eyes warning, just to, to mention one. Or, or emergency call is mandatory in Europe, and we had it like ten years ago in every single vehicle. This is how data uh, and the access to data and the census and, and all that can make it actually better. Personally, I believe that this the, the the big transformational thing, the the big disruptor, will be pooling services in cities, but also in rural areas, and that data. And predictive data and AI that this will make it possible for uh, for the service providers to actually run and operate the service. This is, I guess, the big game changer.
1: And does does BMW develop a lot of their 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 software in house, or do they would they contract with with others, or maybe run on provide stuff that would actually?
9: Yeah, good market. question. Well, we do both. We have like 15,000 engineers in Munich where we, where we run our R&D center, but we certainly also need – we had a, um, a cooperation with Mobileye a couple of years ago right. to, to really understand, because BMW is comparably like, – to you guys, we are super big, but compared to Nissan, we are not maybe not that big, or Toyota or so, right? And so we need to find the best possible way for us as a medium-sized OEM how to actually deal with the costs that are certainly really not irrelevant, right? And, and we, we have to invest into, uh, electrification at the same time into automation at the same time into data security. And then we still have these, li- these minor trade issues, uh, and, and supply chain issues right now. So that's a, quite a lot at the same time, right? And we need to figure out who are, who are the best partners for us, um, might be um, a company like yours, but might might be also another m- manufacturer like like Mercedes.
1: Well, and it's also – we have to recognize that, uh, you know, a lot of these traditional larger OEMs that started as more or less family companies um, necessarily take a long time in their decision cycle. From a managerial standpoint, they are a little more uh, – less nimble many times, uh, and that's not a – you know, that can be an asset, but it also can be an impediment. And I said that you don't have to, but I think we saw when we had our students over in 2018 and working with you all on strategy, they were throwing out some ideas that were pretty radical. And I think it was, it was maybe hard to, to foresee some of those futures they were anticipating then in 2018 when we weren't, you know, things weren't pivoting so hard to, to ESG outcomes.
9: Well, we we are in a good situation that 46% of our shares belong to one family, so and they really give us kind of freedom to not only look into the next quarter and the figures of the next quarter, but to really make these long-term decisions, which is great. Um, but still, 53% or 54% is uh, like of the, the shares are, I don't know, globally distributed somewhere, and those people, of course, also expect their return. Um, so the, the, the uh, business case discussion that you had uh, in the previous discussion, I can I can hear that maybe
1: Brock do, I mean do you, do you have any thoughts in terms of kind of where the opportunities are here in terms of and you would think about it from an investment standpoint? yeah you know?
10: yeah, absolutely. So I think you know when you think about data, I think there are like multiple layers of that. One is the obvious one, like the data from the car. Uh, and, you know, uh, both of you guys are a good example of that, and I agree 100% the data in itself is and will be commoditized. It's more about what you do with that data. But when you think about the data around vehicles, it's not just the data from a vehicle uh, or about that uh, driver. For example, like as uh, I I do a lot of like uh, logistics investments, So last mile delivery, for example, like we are going in a world where like there are so many different last mile delivery companies, and then autonomous vehicles are adding to that. Neuros of the world, starships of the world. Orchestration of that is a big problem, mm-hmm. and that's a data issue as well. Uh, and then same thing, like you know, uh, we have one company called BlueDot. Uh, that is uh enabling or providing location data and in today's world again like when you're arriving uh, a restaurant when you are going to a uh, you know a takeout restaurant uh they sh- there's so much you can do with that data uh from uh, uh making logistics supply chain more uh efficient so I- that is the second use case, and then the third one is more about the uh, uh, at the infrastructure level. So, for example, we have a, uh, another company in our portfolio called Hayden AI. Uh, they have these smart cameras uh, on city buses, uh, and as the city buses go around the city, uh, they are able to detect, uh, you know, bus lane violations, uh, bus stop violations. And, again, that's uh, another use case for data uh, and helping cities uh, use that data uh, to manage the infrastructure more effectively. So it's not it, – it, when you think about data, the opportunities are not just about the vehicle or the passengers or the drivers. I think there are two other d- different levels on top of that.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a lot – I mean, there's a lot of companies even in, in erring to the data labeling space or the data, uh, the data processing space to actually accelerate – automated solutions, and I think that's – I'm not sure, Savas. if you have, like, companies that are actually using your platform that are doing some of of that work, is that something that they – that you have companies that will be working on perhaps more advanced driving solutions that are using your platform?
0: Uh, So I think there's probably about 20 or 30 different kind of categories of applications being built on our platform today. Uh, If I had to highlight a couple of um, them, for instance, in the auto insurance space, a uh, lot of insurance companies, or almost all of them, depend on antiquated mechanisms like the credit score. Or um, while they can't use discriminatory factors like your age or gender, they do do things like use your zip code. But that still has uh, um, demographic representation if you pick a zip code. That's just the reality. So things like the uh, credit score are discriminatory and insurance rates are much higher for certain demographics than others. But once now consumers have access to their own vehicle's data and they're able to get priced if they choose to do so based on how many miles they drive – that is uh, a lot more equitable because it's no longer based on irrelevant factors like the zip code you happen to live in, but rather based on how much you drive or if you choose to report it, how much how you drive your vehicle. Uh, when it comes to uh, something like uh, getting your car repaired or uh, maintained, it turns out certain demographics get taken advantage of heavily by dealerships uh, because there's no other option or choice. But if you have access to your own vehicle data and you can uh, share it with multiple repair mechanic shops, independent or authorized dealers, you have visibility and transparency into how your car is performing, and you can likely receive a better quote. And that's happening today on our platform as well. Uh, consumers are able to get vehicle history reports for the very first time. That's actually based on how their car is performing because of platforms like SmartCar. Uh, we also talked, uh, uh, um, uh, both previous panelists and you both mentioned the grid and how the grid might not be ready for EVs. Uh, there's probably a few hundred thousand drivers today that are doing things like smart charging their car through our platform today. Uh, as it turns out, yes, there is uh, um, uh, not always availability of energy in the grid, but uh, there is uh, a high uh, – there's, there's a um, – what do you call it? Um, a lack of a, uh, there's a surplus available during off-peak hours, and during peak hours, there isn't enough availability. So about, you know, 30, 40 different venture-funded companies have emerged across Europe and North America that take advantage of our platform to shift charging away from the 4 to 9 p.m. windows when energy is really in high demand. Uh, and uh, resume charging between midnight and let's say 6 a.m. when energy is actually not only more affordable, but it's also the energy mix makeup is often much cleaner as well. So these types of things are enabling consumers for the first time to actually have visibility and control of their own vehicle and also uh, uh give them benefits or advantages and finally I'll maybe touch on one more topic since I know you're from the government side as well but um uh, states like utah uh, virginia oregon and california have are now shifting away from the fuel gasoline tax Rather than taxing drivers based on gas, they're taxing drivers based on the number of miles they drive. And rather than charging a very high EV registration fee here, which disincentivizes people from purchasing an electric car, they're rather providing a variable rate based on the number of miles you drive all of those states that I mentioned are using smart cars platform today to let drivers report their mileage and they can get a, a, a invoice based on how much they drove rather than a much greater flat fee registration fee each year. And these are the types of things that are giving consumers more uh, control, power, transparency and privacy over their own vehicle data.
1: Yeah, that's great. And then I think, I mean, when, when you talked about that last year, so I'm glad you brought that up and we were able to have a more rich kind of in-person discussion and, uh, but one one of the things that I want to kind of talk to you about is kind of the, this idea, and maybe we could you, know, you you focus a lot on kind of smart cities infrastructure with a lot of what you do as well, and it'd be interesting you know come back to you, Sahas, and just hear kind of if there's interplay with some of the apps that are that are coming up in your platform between. The type of infrastructure and IOT infrastructure that's, that we're seeing deployed in cities by public or private vendors. And it sounds like Hayden is one of those. But I mean, so what is the kind of the smart city strategy from the BMW perspective? Is there, are there, is there infrastructure that you're putting in place or you're wanting to see in place? And it can be a European perspective if if you want, but I'm just curious what your
9: vision there is. Yeah, okay. (laughs) That's several questions. Um, I will start, um, first off, you said, um well, I, I, please don't get me wrong. I, I did not say that the, that the grid is not ready. I'm, or will not be ready. I'm just saying there is a lot we need to do. And BMW and PG&E started a project here in California called Charge Forward that exactly does what you just described. Aligning people's charging demand to the supply of renewable energy to take, or to make some, some peak shaving. Uh, that's first. And second, what, what you, what you said, Billy, um What we tried in in Hamburg and what I I mentioned earlier and in Berlin and other other cities like Rotterdam also in the Netherlands is something that I want to try here in Los Angeles as well. So we we use data that we have from our vehicles that are on the road, but we also conduct surveys to determine how people actually interact with their vehicle. And the reason why we do that is that we understand that that there's – Different reasons why people use their private vehicle, and there's reason why people use or don't use the bike or the public transit or yeah. I don't know whatever. Right? This ranges from accessibility to costs to safety to I don't know whatever you can imagine can be a reason why people do or don't do this. And we have really um, we have a methodology developed together with a German university. And together with UC Davis, we will be conducting this in, 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 in fall this year. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll go to Los Angeles County. And to really find out how car-dependent are people right now, probably very car-dependent because in Los Angeles you don't have much alternatives in many places of the county. But the question is, is, is the car dependency something that people actually appreciate? Like being in my car every day is really great, or is it rather from for many people that they say, well there 's just no other way to get around i don 't like sitting in the, in the traffic jam every day for two hours that 's not what I want and then we can use these sta- these findings, the data from our vehicles including including charging and all that, to develop together with the city new approaches like what we did in Hamburg, what we did in Berlin, and where we were able to implement service that actually people really appreciated and where we 're not we or the city or somebody else said this is what you in this neighborhood what you need because people know way better what they need and what they want than we do and this is actually our approach
1: so when you develop it sounds like so when you develop that predictive model of travel behavior so you can and I'm assuming you can you can anticipate propensity to travel to a certain degree or propensity for uh, roadway collisions or any number of things, which that is happening in Europe to a certain degree. But do you retain ownership of that predictive model or is that co-owned between you and the public agency?
9: Well, w- right now we pay for that. So it's our, uh, the property is URIP. ours. yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's, the value is much bigger if we share it. It's, it's useless if we, uh, only for, yeah. for our own purpose, but we, of course we want to share it. So, if, everybody, if anybody has some some proposals, I'd be happy to hear and discuss it for for LA, for LA next year. We are looking for partners to exactly use this data that we are just about to, to generate. Yeah,
1: I mean, we, we we did have a question from the audience that was kind of about kind of like if I'm a developer and I want to develop on one of your platforms, maybe a Hayden platform or or kind of a smart car or use this data, can I develop my own AI predictive models based on your data and it sounds like maybe slices of data could be available to researchers or things like that is, I mean is that am I saying that right am I overstating or
9: well there's two data that I'm talking about one is the vehicle data and we have to be really strict about that data and it's not only that we don't want to share it but there, there's some uh, some privacy concerns coming with this as well so our customers really expect us not only us but any Mm-hmm. Anybody who actually deals with data to really be careful with with what we do, and as the, the the vehicle safety aspect as well. So just giving any third party access to the vehicle to provide some services means also that the vehicle remains unprotected, and anybody who has the skills can actually take over the vehicle, which is certainly not what what, what anybody wants. So this is a data that we that we really are cautious what we do with that, but we also share this data to, with cities to make – I don't know who mentioned this um, – a pothole detection, for example. is something that our vehicles can mm-hmm. do. So the camera can do it, but also the bumpers can detect that, the, that there's a pothole. And we can detect those data to the city and say, well, on this main street, uh, on, the, on this uh, location – there is a pothole. You need to fix that. That is certainly something we do.
1: Brock, you were going to weigh in there. Well,
10: I was going to give another example. So we have uh, another company in our portfolio called Gridwise, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's a, a cross uh, gig economy platform uh, analytics software. Uh, so as a gig economy a driver, you know you are using Uber one day, Lyft or DoorDash. You know you are using multiple platforms uh and oftentimes like uh you don't know uh how to manage it most effectively so they're providing that analytics to the drivers but as a byproduct of that they they have amazing data across all the drivers and across all the platforms so any given Uh, place they can clearly see what the market share of a specific platform is or like where are the hotspots in the cities are and uh, they actually monetize that data and you know they also share it with universities so for research project they share it with gig economy platforms but they also share it with uh, charging networks for example you know where to put your charging stations based on this gig economy activity so there, like you know that's a kind of like a win-win-win scenario where uh, the drivers, the gig economy workers, benefit from that analytics product. It's a commercial agreement between the platform and them. And then they aggregate that data and they make that available to third parties that they can use that uh, for their own
1: decision-making. So if I'm a, if I'm a city and I want to kind of provide data that facilitates innovation for one of your companies, Barack, or maybe for one of a developer that's working on your platform, Sauce, you know what what kind of data is most useful for me to provide into those kind of those kind of ecosystems?
0: well we ourselves don't store any data we have right. no data at smart cars so um we don't provide anyone with data because we have none to provide <laughs> but uh, what we do enable is let consumers if they choose to do so access their own vehicle data and it, and bring it into the products and services that they choose to use so that there's that's the fundamental difference so if again you want to share your odometer reading with your insurance company or your uh, charging status with your utility or anything of that nature, we facilitate letting a consumer make that choice and decision, but we ourselves don't have, uh, any data sets, whether it's identifiable, we don't have any data sets, whether it's anonymized or aggregate, uh, we don't have any form of data sets in any form, uh, to share with any entity. So it would require explicit consent from every single individual vehicle owner, um, uh, to allow them to access their own information and do what they
1: want with it. Well, let's dive. Let's go there. You know, what, kind of what about this interplay between uh, consumers and their rights to their own data? I mean, cause, cause how should companies and developers really be, really be thinking about that?
0: Sure. So, uh, it, you know, if, so let's see in the audience here, um, how many of you have owned a point and shoot camera? Raise your hand or DSLR, smartphone, whatever it is. Okay. And how many of you, raise your hand again if you believe that that photo you took on your camera should belong to you, that you own the rights to it? Pretty much everyone. And and then let's go over to, like, some sort of software service. Um, how many of you use Microsoft Office or Google Docs? Perfect. If you wrote an essay, a book, you published something, raise your hand again if you believe you own the exclusive rights to what you wrote in that product or service. That's pretty much everyone again. So, uh, um, uh whether you sell that photograph you took on your phone or camera, whether you publish a book that you wrote in Microsoft Word or Google Docs, uh, there's no expectation that you pay Google or Nikon or camera Canon a uh, fraction or all of what you make when you do commercialize that item. But yet when it comes to your car, um, they're still uh, um, often a chief data monetization officer in a lot of OEM organizations who believe that where you drove, when you drove, how you drove, when your car needs diagnostics, when it needs maintenance, uh, is their information. And they're trying to sell or aggregate or anonymize that, whether it's for cities, uh, dealerships, repair mechanic shops, whatever it might be. So that's that's what we're talking about yeah, here at SmartCar. I, I
1: think we should also say, Cities want that data, too.
0: And, yes, cities uh, should be able to get something. But, again, if there is a consumer who chooses to participate in it, uh, they should have that right to that privacy as well. And that's also part of why we're pretty excited about things like the American Data Privacy and Protection Act uh, that uh, is making it uh, uh, reinforcing that consumers have privacy when it comes to their own vehicle data, uh, as long as uh, in addition to any other type of consumer electronic device that they may own or operate
1: agree disagree thoughts
9: <laughs> well um, my view is slightly different um, of course you are right that um, once you have the vehicle you own also the data the, the question is what you do with that with that data and if you as a, as a customer uh, give consent to the insurance company that they can determine your driving style and make your uh, I don't know your 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 um uh, insurance rate higher or lower that's certainly up to you and we would we we allow this the only thing is that the insurance company will not get direct access to the vehicle but we'll have to go through the uh, through the cloud which is not a big problem i guess um but but then there's a lot of data which i mean if if the sensors determine that your car needs a service right then this this data is something that you can use and go to the next third party and say well please Do me the service or I want to book the service. If you give consent, then that's also not a problem. But who else would, would be, uh, would use this data then?
1: Well, so maybe we say that, for example, in most of Europe, their, um, traction control data is required to be shared with roadway agencies for safety reasons. Um, should people be, for the public good, should people be able to opt out of that? Or should they be automatically, or should they opt in? And so maybe there are some certain policy mechanisms in terms of opting in, opting out, or some aggregation type strategies. So I think maybe that's a better, a more fair comparison in terms of like something that you already are participating in.
9: Well, personally, I'm I'm not that hesitant to share certain data if um, if if the company I'm sharing it with is, is trustworthy, and I think that is one of the. The secrets that we as an industry have to really – that we have to keep our word and that we have to – there have been so many bad examples in the future of what happened to right. to the data that that people actually gathered and, and, and used and sell, sold and even influenced uh, public elections and, and all that. So this is really bad for, for all that users. If, if I would be a customer, I would not opt out that um, that my vehicle traction data is, is sent to a public a, a agency. But if people want to do that for whatever reason, they should be able to.
1: Barack, any thoughts?
9: I think, you know,
10: yeah, of course, like uh, consumers' data is their own data, but there are different, you know, shades of gray. Like, you know, in your example too, you know, with Microsoft or uh, your phone, No, there are also, like, you know, crash reports, but still, like, you know, you give permission if you want to share that crash report with the developer, but, you know, that's, for example, an example, similar example of, like, with the car data, there are so many, so much you can do with that data that is beneficial for everybody, and then uh, for the other data from a regulation point of view, I think, you know, there are certain things that, yeah it's an easy it's easier to get it from the car but it's also externally observable data you can externally observe certain like speeding for example like you can if you had radars everywhere you could potentially observe that without tapping into the car so get tapping into the car is just a shortcut to get that data so that's another like you know right. uh, shade of gray there like oh yeah i could have gotten that data it just makes it easier can i get that data through the car
1: so, what about kind of uh, the the notion of um, road use charges for EVs? And um, let's can me so, Hoss, can you comment a little more on kind of how that might play out for fleets, and kind of how you see you know maybe the the smart car platform actually working on a fleet level in terms of pricing? Because we talked a little bit about as we're looking towards automation, I think we're seeing more automated fleets. Is there a platform-based approach to that?
0: Uh, yeah, so I think we're seeing um, pretty much every DOT at the state level, as well as the federal DOT, figuring out what their decisions are around um, taxation of uh, electric vehicles, hybrids, or even just the evolution of the tax for gas cars as well. So I think that's been super interesting to see because, one, a lot of them are actually quite progressive in not wanting to actually have – um, uh, access to private information. They don't want to be storing or handling people's PII, which has actually been very surprising for us to see. When we walked into this, we were worried that they would want to be like tracking every single driver's geolocation by the second or something of that nature. And the reality is I wouldn't want that personally, nor does anyone I've ever spoken with. So, uh, but the second thing is I think a lot of them are finding creative ways to operate these programs. As an example, let's take, uh, the state of Utah or Virginia. Um, at first glance, someone may think, hey, when if I need to be opting into these programs, what is the government or some uh, state collecting about me? As it turns out, the only thing that they end up collecting at the end of the year is the an integer, a single integer, um, the differential between the first day of the year and the last day of the year, which is the difference in your odometer reading from the start of the year to the end of the year. So when constituents in the States or people who live there uh, were surveyed about this, are you comfortable with something like that being shared? And they say, yeah, I'm fine with that. That's that's pretty minimal. It's clear to me exactly what's being shared. It's not what day I drove, what hour I drove, where I drove, when I drove, or who was in my car or anything of that nature. But it's a really simple uh, mileage that was uh, transmitted and stored. And that's it for my invoicing. And once that invoice is complete, they even toss that piece of information. So if it's done correctly, it's incredibly exciting. And when it comes to fleets, uh, you know, I think a lot of the states are looking at uh, a rate that varies based on things like weight class. If you have a lightweight passenger car, you may get charged this many cents per mile. If you uh, drive a much heavier vehicle, which causes more wear and tear on the roads that you drive on, uh, then you pay a slightly higher rate per every mile you drive. And it still comes out with the exact same solution where they end up storing not much more than that differential of the first day of the month or first day of the year to the last day of the year. So it can maintain privacy. It can use very minimal data, and uh, it can be a pretty simple mechanism to explain to folks of how it works. And, again, the more uh, funding that we put into our infrastructure means um, tires that last longer, less microplastics that end up in our water supply, uh, better MPG for your vehicle, Uh, less potholes means, you know, less broken axles, less maintenance on your vehicle, less broken windshields from things hitting it. Uh, and, uh, most drivers from the research that I've seen end up actually saving money if, uh, uh, the right funding goes into the infrastructure that we drive on.
1: So, okay, I I want to ask you one more thing about this. So, if I'm a, if I'm a rider in a, in a fleet vehicle, I'm a rider, so I'm a consumer, for example, to Uber and Lyft, do I have a right to turn off my data sharing with a third party?
0: So, uh, sorry. Should I
1: have a right? If you're, say that one more time. If I'm a, if I'm a, a customer in a fleet vehicle, for like, for example, a ride share vehicle, do I have a right to, should I have a right to turn off access to my ride data?
0: So that would probably be governed by the terms of service terms between of you service, and the, yeah, yeah. uh, service the provider that you're using, yeah. yeah. But the topic that I think is pretty interesting to me, and I'd love to also hear your perspective on this, is, um, right now there's actually uh, a BMW driver in the state of California who's filed a class action lawsuit and part of why is by turning on your car, you agree to the terms of service that states that your data is being shared by simply turning on your infotainment system. Uh, so that is there's no way to opt out of that. By simply turning on and starting to drive your car, you're opting in and opting into that data collection. So things of this nature are really interesting to us because, uh, you know, you should have an option to not have to have your data shared with third parties, and uh, um, I'm kind of curious to see how OEMs evolve and their thinking around this because, you know, again, on smartphones and all these other products, you know, they some of them have it in the wrong directions with all sorts of consumer electronics, but now we're seeing uh, a real back, right? And phones like your iPhone, even Android, a lot of them are heading in the direction of a lot of privacy controls that are emerging so consumers ensure that they're location, their photographs, their contact lists, their text messages, things like this are actually protected, and you consumers have control over the permissions that they can uh, uh, permit, you know, a third-party app to actually access information off their device. And we're hoping to see that model get more adopted within the automotive sector as well.
1: Timo, you want to respond and
0: maybe? Yeah,
9: I mean, I, I heard this this uh, comparison between car and smartphone like many times. A car and a smartphone are two different things. That's why I think you should treat them differently, at least to a certain extent. I don't know the case you were referring to here in California. I will look it up later. Um, but but in general, again, the car manufacturer always is responsible for the safety of the vehicle. Always, period. And this is where the discussion ends on my uh, in, in my world because people we we are we have to make sure that the car is under every uh, every um, situation is is really um, performing as it's supposed to be as it's supposed to and if we open up too much then this is really under pressure.
1: Yeah. So, Brooke, I want to give you the last the last word here because I, I I feel like we've talked a lot about the data, but you see a lot of stuff uh, from an innovation standpoint. So, your landscape as an investor is really wide, and when we think about Infrastructure investment going to the future, whether or not it's EV charge stations, whether or not it's uh, smart city infrastructure, certain types of signals and process hardware or software, where do you see the opportunity for kind of pushing the envelope where where is the innovation space that you're looking in terms of the future of your funds
10: yeah so I, I you know when when you think about innovation and where the world is going and the opportunity from a venture capital point of view. They can be different things because, you know, there are certain things where, like, yeah, we are adding more charging stations. We need solutions to better optimize our fleets, you know, better pick locations for those, this, that. Like, the world isn't going in one direction, but that doesn't mean that there is necessarily a venture investment opportunity there. Uh, there, There can be a lot of companies making money in those domains as well. But again, like if there isn't a clear you know defensibility or order of magnitude, better results for from the other ones, like it's difficult to uh, get uh, venture like uh, returns on those investments. Mm-hmm. So I think those are two different things in a lot of these cases that uh, includes infrastructure that includes uh, you know, electrification, that includes uh, fleet optimization, that includes charging stations, that includes charging infrastructure. A lot of these things are happening and the world is going one direction. But the, when you look at specific opportunities, uh, you know, the differentiation or the order of magnitude better result is oftentimes not there.
1: Yeah, that's a good perspective. And I think it reminds us, too, that these issues are super thorny, right? Everything we grapple with up here is not... It's not an easy issue. This, this data privacy thing, we've been talking about this for a long time. We'll be talking about this tomorrow, most likely, after the election. But the, the thing is, is that I, I think what you painted is this idea that when we talk about, for example, the, the, the investment that government is putting in now really can take off some of that top loss capital that we can maybe see some of these companies that are doing some of this, like, uh, this work that isn't as profitable, it's not a traditional. Maybe that can actually accelerate some of those ESG investments that we really want to see happen for some of these these wicked or thorny problems. And so um, thank you all. This was another great conversation. Let's give them a hand. We're going to really focus on where we're going next and some successes. So I guess it's my pleasure to introduce Prashanti Raman from CRUZ. Um, Prashanti, maybe you could tell the audience here and everybody online who you are, what you do. I think we've heard a little bit about cruise, but maybe you could just tell us your perspective on cruise.
11: Great. Thanks. Good afternoon. I realize I, uh, I had the privilege and honor and yet the burden of being the last session before you get to drink out there. So, I you know, we'll, we'll try to make it as fun as possible. Oh, there's happy hour of this. (laughs) Wait, wait,
1: what? Oh, for all those people that left.
11: <laughs> so I'm Prashanthi Raman. I am Vice President of Global Government Affairs at Cruise, the all-electric self-driving company founded in 2013. You'll see us here in San Francisco as well as in Phoenix. Um, we are an all-electric from the start fleet that is uh dedicated to self-driving with the mission to improve people's lives, to connect things and people and places and experiences that they care about. Uh, we have been on the road since that 2013, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, our different our different functional areas, our different philosophical areas, and and obviously our operations um here on the streets of San Francisco. So excited excited to be here. I've been at the company for about two and a half years. Um, I was at a company that you may recall the name of, Lyft. Uh, prior to that, I was there for five and a half years as their head of North America Government Relations. Um, I'm a healthcare lawyer by way of background, so really tech and transportation was sort of a pivot in a new career. I have an M.P.H. and I um, was a regulatory healthcare lawyer for several years until I got um, a gubernatorial appointee by the then Governor Illinois of Illinois Pat Quinn um, to run his healthcare legislative affairs. And I was serendipitously handed the ride sharing bill back in twenty fourteen, which is sort of the connective tissue between um healthcare and emerging tech and transportation right now. So very grateful to Billy for being an incredible partner to USF USF and as well as Commonwealth Club for having us um and excited for this conversation.
1: Well, it's, it's funny too, and I think we, we forget maybe sometimes when we're in this room, we're talking about, we spend all day talking about infrastructure and data, and part of why we're here too is related to health outcomes, right? Right. I mean, and I know Kyle's really, I mean, your CEO is very interested in this topic as a runner, a fellow runner, right? I mean,
11: fellow runner. I mean, I had did two and a half miles yesterday. He's run seven marathons. So maybe not a fellow runner, but maybe a fellow runner <laughs> you know team. Uh, touche.
1: <laughs> Kyle, want to go for a run.
11: <laughs> yes, but, you know, that's one of the reasons that we started out very, um, you know, all lecture from the start, because we know that transportation, um, the pollution aspect of that is one of the biggest faults of uh, the transportation industry right now. As we continue to think from a city, state, and, of course, country level, moving towards the direction of being sustainable, an electric, we sort of are already there for building the future of transportation. Um, for everyone and for the future, we're starting at a, at a really good place. So um, it is something that's very near and dear to my heart, but uh, especially based on my public health background um, and sort of thinking about the social determinants and of, of health as well. And um, I'm, ex- I'm excited to, to talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things, too, is that because I have been an advocate for for safe streets and slow streets, it is... I think we we sometimes get distracted by by some of this idea of kind of the safety outcomes that we're really talking about. So um, maybe we can just talk about use that as a springboard to talk about what we have learned. And I think maybe it's important to frame that you know there's there are a couple you know crews there there are a couple companies in this space that are really learning a lot about what is what it means. And we heard from Dan from Neuro earlier, and and we've had. You know, Guaymo on these panels in the past and so we're learning a lot about self-driving operations and from your perspective, kind of where are we in our, in our learning, uh, you know, opportunities, challenges, how we lean into the future. Sure.
11: Well, that's a lot. Involved. I know. So we'll break well, it we, down. Well, we'll what have we learned? <laughs> keep it simple. <laughs> we'll break it down. You know, I think we're break coming down. together at a really critical time right now because I think for so many of years we've t- discussed the self-driving industry being so far out, so Jetson-like, in this sort of euphoric, um utopic vision of the of the future of the world. But it's happening right now in the streets and, in and around us, and I think it's a really important time to talk about what we're doing from from the industry, but obviously from from Cruz's perspective um you know at cruise we've we've logged over 4 million miles since we've started uh you, many of you have hopefully uh, been in a ride uh since we launched our public ride ridership program in june where we've actually driven over 400 thousand driverless miles with with people of the public inside. And so what we're seeing is sort of an interesting um, convergence of obviously um, having the technology work as its will, and many of those miles are there, and then also ways in which to improve and iterate the technology moving forward as we continue to expand. The second kind of major comp- component is that is really launching with communities and not at them. So that trust race is as important as the tech race and even more so from Cruz's perspective. So really figuring out how to meet consumers where they are. You know, I've been in riders, uh, with first-time riders for the last several yeah. months, and it is always the same sort of app- build of apprehension, excitement, and wonder as we enter the car, as they buckle to ride, since so we have a buckle-to-ride safety policy before you can start the, the ride. And... And then it's, it's unspe-
1: unspectacularly yes. spectacular. Exactly,
11: exactly. It's a you know brilliantly boring, as they say. Because in the first two minutes, it's like, oh my gosh, the steering wheel's moving. Oh my gosh, we're taking an unprotected left, and nothing's happening. Oh, they they went around the double parked vehicle, and then it's like, so how's your day today? Yeah. And you completely forget about whatever is happening in the front seat and by the car, and that's. A really fascinating moment to see it. And they walk out really different. It's one ride. It's one ride. It's not the several times over where we think about, particularly from the TNC world, we're teaching people to get into a car with a stranger when we were taught that as kids to not do so. The behavioral paradigm shift into teaching someone to get into a ride with no one, you would think would be like some huge monumental task, but it is really taking one ride for people to understand the brilliance and the magic and really starting to open up their eyes to what the benefits of this can offer.
1: Right, so, and, and we heard earlier, like, I, um, I, uh, just with our, you know, I think we can talk about it. I mean, our students were, and many of you in the audience who participated in the research rider pilot were some of these people that, that were early, you know, early riders, and they really had these experiences, but one of them was, you know, some of them were kind of really being, uh, feeling a lot empowered because they could go out, in the evenings and these off-peak hours where they felt like they didn't have the service they needed. But also they were looking at like this opportunity of not having – and we, we heard from, from Nathan earlier saying like we had students that were talking about like really feeling so great that they didn't have to feel pressure to drive after a night of – after having a couple drinks or doing some of that, which is – uh we see questions a little bit about, like, well, what's the difference between a ride share? Well, safety, uh, safety number one, but then I think there's also the commitment in terms of what you're learning in terms of all green, right, and and what you're doing from an electric vehicle standpoint.
11: Right. I think that's right. You know, we, we saw from the, the studies uh, that we partnered with you on, which is that 20% of those rides were for non-recreational, non-social purposes. So it was actually filling a, a different concept of not just being late night rides, uh, you know, so autonomous vehicles, we don't drive drunk, we're not distracted, you know, we really can We follow the rules of the road, but it is also serving a functionality in day-to-day lives of these students that we are, are really augmenting and improving their lives as well, um, but not to, not to discount the opportunity that we're also learning about where, you know, connectivity to transit is like 90% necessary from, from the study, or we think about how accessibility is so important. So with regards to state, you know, sustainability, you know, Cruz really feels like it's one of being able to be in a position of, of leadership and thought leadership. Yeah. Um, Dave Rubin, who you work so closely with is sort of, um, you know, the brains behind our farm to fleet initiative. So we are uh, powered by renewable energy here in California by those from two farms in the Central Valley, um, really providing an economic empowerment opportunity for uh, for two farms that are hundreds of miles away. Um, And it's something that's always kind of talked about when we think about technology and sort of bridging that urban and and rural divide. And we are able to sort of critically, creatively think of solutions moving forward. So we're in a really fortunate um, and pretty cool spot.
1: Well, I think it draws a line, too, to something that Martin brought up earlier about, like, the – we will get to a point with EV fleets and with, with EVs in general where we, we have to think about capacity and, and the cruise perspective has been, can we actually be part of the, e, the electric production side? Which is a, right. when we think about kind of successes, I mean that, that really is, kudos Dave, wherever you are, I can't see you. He's right. But uh, yeah, I mean it's a really big, really big win. Uh, but what, can, what about like this, um <sighs> I don't know if it's clickbait or what, but there's been some stuff in the news recently about, you know, five billion dollars in two companies and the car still stops in the road. Yeah. And I mean, so are we, are we, I, I think we're there in terms of the tech, but you know, what do these pain points mean and kind of, and how do we learn from them going forward? You know, I think maybe you could describe some of the issues that you've faced out there in the roadways doing this experimentation. Yeah.
11: Well, we can't really talk about the future until we take a step back and contextualize where we have been. So we think about the 40,000 – Forty thousand tr- traffic fatalities a year that are only continuing to rise—the highest that they've been in the last 16 years. We think about the transportation pollution and the carbon mon- monoxide, uh, carbon di- CO2 emissions that we've been s- facing um, for decades, and then also, of course, the inaccessibility for many groups that have been um, plaguing the transportation industry. So really, that's the that is sort of the motivating factors of what cruise is is behind driving down the fa- the fatalities. Really improving the the air the air in and around us, and providing an accessibility for particularly for particularly communities that have not been afforded a of trans, transportation option. So with that, we use that as with safety being the north star, and so from the technology that we build to the vehicle to the operations to ensuring that the passengers inside the vehicle are really being as uh, as safe as we possibly can, and I think that is something that is really important to to talk about and to really vocalize, because so often when we think about all those miles that I talked about, four million miles over the four hundred thousand miles, the, the the small pieces of the social media or the clickbait, as think as you said, are portions of time where that allow us to lean into what we can do better to iterate, and we're intentionally starting small to be able to be more deliberate, to be more intentional, to understand the ways in which the technology can work. Because while we have driven all those miles and while we have done hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours of simulation and plugging different ways of dynamic incidents that can occur into the vehicle and the great thing about fleet management is if one car learns it, the entire fleet learns it. But we're seeing different dynamic situations out there that are interesting and are going to be something that is going to happen in a dynamic um, urban environment like San Francisco. It's why we chose to start here, yeah, because if we can master or at least be pretty close to mastering the one of the most unique, challenging streets of the United States, we can pretty much expand really quickly that um in other places. And that's what we're seeing in in places like Austin and Phoenix since we just announced yeah, and we'll I think be there's
1: there. been some issues too, where there's been some policy friction from my understanding, where, for example, it's hard to pull over a lot of times, as a commercial vehicle in a private driveway. I I believe it's illegal, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times people complain because of a double-parked cruise but it is perfectly legal, right, to for a, a vehicle to double park in, yes. particularly if it can't find a safe location to drop off a passenger.
11: Correct. Route. And so, you know, there is a law under CVC that allows for commercially plated vehicles to double park um, for a reasonable period of time. So that's why you see, um, you know, sometimes cruise cars. The uh, the default is to look for a pick up be- or drop off point at the curb. That is where the default is as you, who all has driven in San Francisco, how often do we find vacant curb, curb. <laughs> availability? <laughs> but that is an opportunity then to have a conversation about curb, um, you know, redesigning curbs and thinking about urban planning and thinking about what goes into the concept of future of transportation, really providing an opportunity for cities like San Francisco and others beyond if we're going to have the future of transportation, how do we build around it and around people and thinking about Ingress, egress. So we actually have improved 3x our pickup and drop off since the beginning of the yeah. year, which I think is fantastic, not only because we want to be better, but also we've heard from consumers. Right. You know, they want to be dropped off close to their destination. Think about if you, as a, as a woman has, I have two daughters, I'm thinking about sending my children out into, uh, San Francisco in a few years, many years.
2: And, <laughs>
11: um, uh, in a, and I want, I don't want them to be dropped off around the block. I would like them to be dropped off in front of their destination so that something can be watching them to go into, to the, that destination. Um, and so we're hearing that over and over again and we continue to kind of iterate the technology yeah. to be able to do that. And we, we,
1: that. you know, Dave was actually in some of our, David Rubin was in some of these things where we even heard feedback from some of our student writers about, well, what happens when I'm not quite comfortable right at my destination? Like maybe there's, you know, a person standing there that I'm not quite comfortable like getting out. And and we heard this from one female rider in our program that was like, maybe I could actually tell the car. And actually what the female rider didn't realize, it sh- all she had to do was press That's the cool. button on the ceiling and talk to a lot. Li- there's always a live operator available. And they could have maybe put her, dropped her a little further down the street.
11: Exactly. Exactly. And that 24-7, you know, at a touch of a button um, you know, customer support is going to be there whether it's the bolt or our future of transportation, the origin. Yeah. Um. So I don't know if. Uh, if well, we we, we, need we, do
1: we that. let's get to the origin. Okay. Yeah. Yes.
11: I mean, I'll, I, I'll I listen
1: to you. But. I mean, I had a situation in Cricket that was the same. Cricket was Cricket is my friend. So all the vehicles have names. They do have names. So Cricket, Cricket, and I had a moment uh in the inner sunset. I was not a participant in my own research, but I did some <laughs> riding, and I'm telling you what. I, cricket, Cricket, Cricket had a had a little meltdown. Um, but uh, quickly recovered after the the uh, uh, attendant, or uh, I don't know what the name is, but they called me remote and said, assistance. "Is ever remote assistance yeah. said, is everybody okay?" And yeah. I said, "Yeah, we're fine. Cr- Cricket's just
11: just having a little moment to himself
2: or actually, herself.
11: I don't know." That's actually a good point. Let's talk a little bit about those vehicle retrieval events or moments of of pause. So, remote assistance is sort of the the pat the the. Assistant on the other side of the vehicle. So the vehicle makes all of its decisions based on the sensor suite, LIDARs, cameras, and radars. And so it takes all of that ingesting of data makes decisions on its own. But it does when it encounters situations where it is unfamiliar or needs confirmation, it pings back to the remote assistance, which is available to say, hey, is that like a debris? Is that a person in the middle of the road? Is that construction zone? Is it okay to to safely to safely pass? And that remote assistance is sort of providing breadcrumbs as in terms of a routing in and around that area. It's the, the decisions to pull out of a particular lane, that's being done by the vehicle. So right now, as intended, the design is when, when situations come up with the vehicles that they are unfamiliar with or that it is outside of what has been approved for us to do by the state of California, think of heavy rain or heavy fog, the vehicle is, design, is doing what it's designed to do. It's pulling over into what we say a minimal risk condition or a controlled safe stop. And it will look for that curbside, curb availability. Oftentimes we know it doesn't exist and so you will see cars um you know every so often being pulled with hazards on and and we being waited for a field support team to come out and and retrieve the car so we call them vehicle retrieval events we are working to minimize how often those happen but as designed the car is doing what it's supposed to do when it's encountering something it's unfamiliar with. Let's pull over and let's not proceed until we know what we're dealing with. Um, so that's usually what you're seeing in some of these larger kind of social media events is that there is a ping back to their RA and maybe there is a situation where there's a couple of cars that are coming up behind it and they can be for a whole different root cause of in terms of technology. There's oftentimes multiple cascading, compounding effects that make that vehicle, you know, um stop into, stop in place. But there is a team that is, you know, in, in the neighborhood roving team, as we say, and they are willing, they are kind of come and pick them up really quickly, um, and remove them. And so we're working from an engineering side and from operational side to minimize how often that happens and really drive down that rate.
1: Yeah. And this abuts a lot of where, where, you know, kind of your adherence to safety and our existing policy norms necessarily haven't evolved to the technology, too. And we've seen this, I think, with a couple emergency vehicle events where the car is abiding by the rules of the road, but there are situations that are complete corner cases that the, the car has to make a judgment. Do I break one law and, and you know, run a red light or or yield to this, you know, let this emergency vehicle buy? I think there's a situation like that, if I'm not mistaken.
11: Absolutely. Yeah. And and that's the thing, it's there's so computers making these decisions, whereas we'll have these sort of like ethical discussions in our head as we're making these like risk trade-offs, right? So similarly, you know, the vehicle is having to have a conversation, like what's the risk What's the risk viability if I go this way versus if I go this way? And they're calculating it in their heads. But one of the ways in which I think we can like help improve that is of course our continued testing and our continuous improvement that we're so committed to. But also, you know, really working with the cities in and around us, talking to having, having collaborative dialogues of like pathways to different emergency, um, sites, um, you know, kind of ping back, ping, pinging back, um, our communication. If there's a situation where we can do better, and and can say, hey, um, you know, we're having a little bit of an issue here. If there's a if there's a first responder that has to come this way, maybe right, they right, go the street around it. Well, we
1: spent a long so, time talking about data right. in the last panel, and and I think what what I'm hearing you say is that is that this emergency response data. If you could get more access to it, you could you could have advanced. Uh, knowledge or advanced anticipatory. A- I think it's.
2: I think
11: it's always great to have like the data piece, but I don't want to discount the fact that these are dynamic situations right. too, right? So we're not always going to see the fire engine going down Golf Street. Right. We're gonna see it go and make unique choices just like we are going to have to make them in terms of the routability as well. So I do think that there's a an iterative mm-hmm. play there. But I think the the larger global um concept I think we both agree on is there has to be more of a dialogue with how we how we figure that yeah, out. Yeah, and there has to
1: be a place to have that dialogue. So that, I think it's yeah. really important. I mean I think so when we look at kind of this idea of kind of what the future should look like, a big part of your dialogue has been around this cruise origin. And I think there's that paints a different vision than what we see driving around San Francisco streets. So maybe you could talk about that that vision. Yeah, I've seen the origin. It's pretty pretty cool car. <laughs> I don't know if you call it a car.
11: We call it a vehicle.
1: It's a vehicle.
11: Um, we call it a vehicle. Uh, you know, so. Cr- Cruise uh, has come up with uh, our partners, Honda and GM, and created a f- full future of transportation that we are calling the Cruise Origin. Um, it is about the size of a Chevy Tahoe, no steering wheel, no driver console, it's subway style doors, um, seats six in in sort of a fireside chat, or uh, fireside chat.
1: Yeah, there we go. Um, uh,
11: campfire seating, I should say, um, that really allows for room as well as some some community building as well. Um, it is something you've never seen before, but really something that we feel is, again, all-electric from the start has a million-mile battery, um, and also is something that is going to be game-changing for uh, for the for the future of transportation. We are also, you know, the, one of the first to to really explore the um, a mobility variant for those who have fixed wheelchairs. So we're calling it the Origin for Mobility. We're looking into how uh, to Work with members of the disabled community from a wheelchair perspective. Understand curb height. Understand where you they can anchor in and really build a different kind of car that, or vehicle that has not been otherwise done before. Um, and something to really critically serve the needs of a community that has not been um, has an option before. Yeah, and
1: this is something that we we did some you know our, our lab here did a, some research on last year in terms of really exploring the uh, accessible autonomous vehicle future and it's a huge need because as I think we heard in the first panel it's it's really hard to provide these paratransit services but it's also hard to meet but also exceed our our federal code and i think what we're seeing is some of these vehicles that are purpose built for handicap accessibility can not only meet uh cfr i don't remember the cfr <laughs> but uh, they can only meet but they can exceed it
11: Yes, and I think you know we talk about a little bit of how the federal government is playing into this too. Even with a concept, uh, a concept like the origin, we do have to seek out permission from the federal government through NHTSA to sort of work in uh, to understand how our vehicle works and how it can be exempted from certain regulations, like the fact that it doesn't have a steering wheel. You have to petition for an exemption for that. You don't have a ex- human, um, you know, pressing on the accelerator, because there is no need for the accelerator with no one driving. Um, and so we're, we've actually, um, completed a request for petition comment period, um, in, in late September. And we're working with NHTSA in and of itself to right, get so, that. So origin we're, we're not
1: going to wonk out on, on acronyms again. Yeah. NHTSA
11: is... the <laughs> Highway Safety Transportation Authority, Agency, I should get that. Administration.
1: Administration. Day for
11: the win. Always All day right. for the win. The
1: audience clarifies. So <laughs> Nitsa, you sought this Nitsa approval, but I believe there's another, you know, when we're talking about this kind of like what are the barriers here, there's another barrier towards these innovative transit platforms, which I believe is – capacity to scale right um, I under the exception I believe there's a cap that's right is that is that correct
11: that's right so under this exemption cap so once you receive the exemptions you're only allowed to make 2500 per year per manufacturer and that is sunsets after two years so
1: if we wanted this ideal transit shared transit future to supplement our existing transit routes there would still be this limitation that that's nationwide right. what we can only produce how many
11: 2500 per year per manufacturer for only two years.
1: Okay, but is that, is that also exported
11: as well? So no that's not export that's not exported per se as well. you know we do have partnerships with Japan and Dubai that are really interested in looking at the origin, so that wouldn't necessarily be applicable there. but I do think that the um the the piece to that is really important because once you put it into commercial the stream of commerce here in the United states that's really is when you need those exemptions and yeah. also when you need um to to uh, abide by that cap and the only way to change that cap is by uh, legislative by okay. uh, legislative authority. And um, so really, as we think about sort of where we are from the federal landscape and really what the policy considerations that are of priority in the federal landscape, you know, not many people are paying attention to autonomous vehicles, but they should, and they should because as we think about competition with um, other countries and around ourselves, we really need to start building um, the future of technology but,
1: in yeah, this country. Yeah, and you could say it's vehicle innovation, right? Like, so if, if we want to get creative about mobility, it may not just be platforms like the mm-hmm. Origin. It may be other.
6: That's right. I've,
1: I've seen a lot of dialogue on light, other lightweight platforms that would be radically experimental as well. And so maybe we need to rethink some of these policies that rethink, you know, the, the vehicles that OEMs are producing in general and what what is approved. So. Um, so, so when we were thinking about this, this cruise origin and kind of this idealized future, like what is, what is this optimal kind of outcome and kind of what should that future look like from a, you know, just in terms of operations in a city and, and, it, and it, is there this idea that we can have You know, I think we heard we'd heard from about this trans this Treasure Island pilot that's happening with the San Francisco County Transportation Authority. You know, is there an opportunity where we have a public and a private sector operator that kind of share the load or share the burden uh, or the benefit uh, of our transit
11: system? Mm -hmm. I do think that there is an opportunity, especially with fleet managed systems, to have more of of that private public Mm -hmm. partnership. Because we're incentivized differently than sort of the the ride-sharing models that we've come to be. You know, we're not um, really – the fleet isn't necessarily incentivized to, like, drive a longer trip. Or to drive a you know to, to a certain place because it's not earning the money. Yeah, right? it's, it's an own fee, um, right? So so you know that um we actually can partner in a meaningful way with public uh public agencies to really provide that connectivity to mass transit, to understand where the gaps are in um the the routes to provide different times of day. Um, and so I do think it's really part of this larger ecosystem where autonomous vehicles can fit in, in a very much more collaborative way than, than, you know, from my history, like the ad- more adversarial way that ha- has come to be with the TNCs. Um, and so I do think that there's an opportunity here when we think about what our, like, ideal look is in the, in the global world is being able to provide, you know, all green, all accessible, uh, you know, ve- vehicles to individuals to get them f- to and from other options to other places, etc. Um, that is sort of like the utopic vision because then you're also driving down the potential fatalities and the injuries when you're putting some um, you're putting autonomous vehicles into the road and not having a lot more of like that human driven behavior.
1: Yeah, being. yeah, and you're also getting to these. You know, we we intro in. Uh, uh, you know, our dean talked to us a little bit about the, kind of how we actually achieve these high-level mm-hmm. goals of sustainability and achieve our UN SDGs, but also it relates to a lot of the financial models that are in her background and that Martin talked about. Where you know, when you own the asset, your unit economics are a lot different than if you're just actually just paying a driver to drive around, which That's is right. what the the traditional rideshare or transportation network company uh, didn't really care about the wear and tear on the vehicle and the the rubber tire pollutants and things like that because i think that's that they were not incentivized to do that they didn't own the asset so um well so i think when we think about this 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 optimized future this this i think the question i is like so how do we get there you know it's like do do what do we need to do to see these scenarios happen and we asked the first panel kind of what kinds of collaborations and partnerships do we need to see? What type of investment from both the public sector and the civic sector need to happen to really achieve these optimal, like urban, maybe suburban, maybe even rural outcomes? You know, what do we need to do to get to utopia?
11: <laughs> well, I, wow, think, I
1: just asked you that, like, a fundamental, I know.
11: Like, fundamentally complicated,
1: question.
11: Like, yeah. <laughs> and I. I hope
1: uh, we, need the, we can like we dialogue about
11: piece. this, yes. Um, you know, I think there's a few pieces to this, right? We can think about urban planning and, 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 right. and yeah. we can think about infrastructure related pieces because there's, um, you know, if as we move towards all electric, you know, how do we, how do we continue to ensure that the grid can, um, really maintain all of this charging we think about pu- providing more public charging and then we have private charging then you think about the weird com- complicated dynamics that are playing out here in the city of sh- the city of san francisco or in which you have ordinances that are sort of pushing out what that pu- charging looks like into certain parts of san francisco putting a more of a burden on other um, you know substations that don't have the funding to be upgraded you know you think about all of these different pieces so really taking a holistic look at what in Infrastructure looks like, urban planning looks like, and um, and thinking about how to move that forward. I think the second piece to that is never um, losing sight of how people. Um, need to be brought along with this. It is It is about education. It is about integration. It is about listening. And I think that is so fundamental into how people not only build trust with the technology, but also build trust with the company providing that technology. And it's market driven, right? It's market by market. So what works in San Francisco is not going to wor- necessarily work in Austin, Texas, which is not going to necessarily work in Chicago, Illinois. So really getting in early and often and starting to talk about what their gaps and what the solutions is that you can come up with and it has to be you know you always think about like cookie cutter like playbooks for every every market that doesn't necessarily work when you're bringing something so new and different to a market that um, has different needs has fundamentally different ways of thinking and um, ways of getting around. Um, and so I think that is something that we need to to bring to bring people forward we also need to meet meet them where they're at and then start to build that future together. So I think those, so, so those two things are, hap, are going to need to be fundamentally there. Um, and maybe we'll get at least halfway to utopia.
1: I, I think we'll <laughs> get almost there. Yeah. Um, so we're a little out of time but I wanna do you have anything else that you would like to add just kind of final thoughts or
11: You know I um I'm super passionate about this access particularly to underserved communities yeah. who have been historically uh, marginalized communities of color that's why I've been in this space for so long and so I think it's a really cool opportunity in a really reliable affordable and a safe way to get in and around and only thing I would say is that I hope you get to Enjoy it once or twice or multiple times in the coming weeks ahead. Um, I have another colleague here who sort of works on our ride-hail business unit. I'm put him on spot to ensure that you all somehow get a ride. His name's Andrew, right in back. Um, and you know, I do think because when you have that moment where you sit there and you can experience what the future looks like, it is life-changing. And so I really hope you. Um, get a chance to do that. Otherwise, go to getcruise.com dot com and you can sign up there.
1: So, uh, well, we do have a couple questions. I think we have time for, if that's okay. Well, sure. So <laughs> one of the um so one of the questions that I think that we, we've hit on this a little bit with get ownership models, but like, so when we think about kind of the what happened with rideshare and with kind of rideshare really taking. Um, doing two things. Increasing the whole transportation pie. So like providing a lot more access for what we defined earlier as, as this kind of latent demand. The demand that existed, it wasn't served. But also kind of really, uh, w- when transit was less efficient, wasn't reliable and convenient, it gobbled up those trips. And so if we think about the future of how the origin might come out and how Cruise is, uh, kind of putting itself forward it as a, as a, as a company, Um, And and maybe it's not just cruise, maybe it's other companies, so we don't have to do that. But how do we actually make sure that we don't actually um, bankrupt transit, that we have a collaborative approach going forward?
11: I think, you know, not to, um, not to like high level the question a bit, but I, I do oh, fundamentally, I do fundamentally think that like the dialogue is important because I think the importance is understanding like where those gaps are yeah and that's how we're able to fill it and start to build that partnership and trust model. And maybe there's something else that we can start to incentivize because sometimes it's just like getting to mass transit right you think about that first mile, last mile solution so often that plagues the transportation industry is it that is it some other way that we can do that um, and so i think that dialogue is important we've started to sort of uncover some issues even in the own san francisco agency conversations that we've we've yeah. started to talk we started to kind of think about and co- uh, at least start to surface and once you start to surface those problems we have really incredible brains at cruise and uh, otherwise in the industry that can think about things in a really different way That's... and are powered by tech
1: and i think the one thing i'll add to is it's simple to say, have the dialogue, but sometimes you need a safe space to have the crucial conversation. Right. And that's it's one of the things we've really tried to do with this conference is really to try to bring public and private sector individuals together to have those crucial conversations. Because sometimes it's not easy to have a conversation where you're on somebody else's turf and you think they're going to behave just like all those those, you know, those rotten situations that were super thorny and wicked. And you think like, oh they're just out to get me and to make a quick buck and i i do think that if you start with that we start with that norm it's really hard to get over that and to see an optimal or or an optimized outcome right so um you know i i think um that was a good place to end and i you know, just to, just take a breath, Prashanti. You've been on the you've been on the spot for a while, but I think what I want to do is just kind of wrap us up with a couple thoughts. Which is, we've really had a nice arc today, and I think one of the things that really was great that you brought up was urban planning and land use and. You know, our Dutchman in the room, Martin, actually hit the nail on the head when he said it's all – it is about land use and housing, and he brought up this idea of Amsterdam going car-free. And I think the thing that we see in a lot of U.S. cities is that we've been unable to make the decision with well, land use and housing that actually enables the transportation infrastructure we want to see. So I I love that you mentioned that and that it's cool that, that Cruz has staff that are thinking about this, and I know the city has staff that are thinking about this, but it really is – it's, it's in, it's important for us as citizens and voters and, and to really emphasize this idea and to, to emphasize that, you know, our own choices and the way we, we kind of live our lives, but also who we elect that make these decisions about how we're going to use our urban spaces is really important. And it's also important just from a, from an electrification standpoint. You talked a little bit about the grid and we talked about that earlier. Um, but we can't do a lot of these shared scenarios unless we make, the land use choices first and the decision to put housing in the right place and the decision to pay for that kind of optimization or that type of transit optimization. And then, you know, the last thing I'll say is exactly what we talked about, which is you, you have to be open to the <laughs> experimentation as a city um, In my book that came out this year, we talked about London as a city of experimentation. But I do see now San Francisco and California has really become particularly an experimentation hotbed for autonomous driving. And that's super exciting. We've made a lot of strides, and there's more to be made. But education and communication and working through some of these thorny, wicked problems – um, is going to be increasingly important to really achieve some of these broader sustainability goals we have as a society. So thank you. Thank you all. Um, we really appreciate it. I have a list of people that I want to thank. But first, uh, this Commonwealth Club space, we really appreciate this the Commonwealth Club for hosting us here. Prashanti, you were very kind and thanked them before we started. But I want to thank them again for hosting us. Um, it's, they're great partners for a lot of the events that we do. Um, and I want to thank you know you all for helping sponsor this event. Uh, Waymo and Planetizen and Atmos also helped out with making this event happen um, and then this you know, the people in the room that are benefiting today from this forum, this would only be only happen because of support of of our dean but also our staff. And so our staff deserve the the most I, I couldn't do what I do without without Danielle and Tanya and Sabrina, Nathan who who helps out. Actually Nathan works for the campus who you heard from earlier. But so thank you. Um, let's give the Commonwealth Club and our staff a big hand So um, again, so we really appreciate everybody that's online. Appreciate you uh, spending your afternoon with us, or wherever you are, it could be your evening or your morning. Um, and all of you in the room, thank you for coming out. Um, we do this every year, and it just seems to. I always think it's, oh, we can't do it again. But it just gets better because the conversation gets richer and more important. And so I hope that you all will come back next year um, when we do this again. Thank you very much for being here, and uh, I wish you all the best. And I think the message is very clear to vote tomorrow. (laughs) All right, cheers. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher.